Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your spotlight for DC titles coming out the week of October 19th, 2021. Where to start? There's so much news. First of all, we got 15 comics to cover, and that's <laughs> not even all the books that are coming out today. But also, we had the news last week that dropped about John Kent being bisexual, so Rocky called it right uh, way back in, the, I think, the first issue you were saying. Uh, that that might be the case. And I was like, nah, 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 they're not going to yeah. do that. They totally did. <laughs> uh, and I, I, you know, not to go on a huge rant about it, but we'll talk about it more in, in a little bit uh, when we get to the uh, the Superman Son of Kal-El issue four, uh, we can dive into the whole bisexual thing a little more. <laughs> uh, and I'll talk about why why it bothers me. And it's not for the reason that you, that you think. Um, but the other thing is that the DC solicits came out for January and there was, Tons of info there about uh, a new event uh, for for the uh, kind of Wonder Woman corner of, of the DC Universe with this trial of the Wonder Women. Uh, we know there's uh, the Peacemaker is getting his own one shot. There's a Justice League versus Legion of Heroes, superheroes from Brian Michael Bendis. Um, there's a, a Batman Begins style comic coming from Chip Zdarsky. That actually has me uh, really excited. There's also a backup coming in Detective Comics written by Mark Wade, where it's the, it, the sort of a nickname of it is World's Finest because it's a story that stars Superman and Batman. And I got to say, like, I hope that that backup leads into a regular series. I would love to, to read a World's Finest story by, by Mark Wade, especially if it's sort of outside of continuity, you know, like the way that the uh, Peter J. Tomasi and Brad Walker detective felt when it first started. Where just tell, let Mark Wade tell the stories he wants to tell. Don't worry about where it fits into DC continuity. Just let Mark Wade like do his thing. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of good stuff coming out in uh, in January, and the solicits are out. You can go and check them out. Um, and the last thing is this last weekend, big news was the DC Fandom, which um, honestly, it's never going to replace like the, the convention experience, right? Like we had New York Comic-Con recently and DC wasn't even there. We didn't have a a, a, a San Diego Comic-Con this year. And even if we did, you know, now that DC is AT&T's decision to put DC in with the Warner Brothers booth and and I don't think that's going to change even though Warner Brothers is, or, or AT&T has kind of, you know, shuffled Warner Brothers off to Discovery. Um, I just think they the comics have become so secondary to everything else they do. And it's unfortunate. And to me... That's kind of what fandom felt like. And I appreciated that, you know, Jim Lee and some others popped on there here or there to try to sort of boost the the level of comics and, and show that, hey, comics are where these things come from. But yeah, I, I felt like most of the comic news that we've had recently is, is sort of negative. Like people focus on the negative aspects like Superman's bisexual or um, or Jim Lee getting on there and talking about a, a change to Superman's motto, which that thing changed 10 years ago. So it. it it's like when you do talk about comics, it's a bunch of people complaining or people just being silent. But anyway, we're going to run through real fast all the announcements, starting with the first big thing they had on Fandom was uh, Black Adam. They gave it wasn't really a trailer, but it was like a sneak peek. Um, it didn't really do much for me. I didn't feel like I got enough to know. Like it sort of looked cool, but I, I you know I've said this before. I, I love Dwayne Johnson. I think he's an incredible actor. I think he's he's very. He seems very personable and very kind of socially aware. But to me, I don't know. He 
Black Adam's always been like a very svelte character. Like he he's so much thinner and and longer and more angular than Shazam. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know. It just doesn't. And he may do a fantastic job. I, I don't know. But I, well, that trailer I, looked amazing. I mean that uh, that that looked amazing. I love that with him catching the bullet and them stumbling upon his tomb or where he's trapped. And I thought it was an amazing teaser trailer. Yeah, and the other part of it is in recent years, and and again, this is probably a lot to do with the movie. DC seems to be trying to turn Black because Black Adam used to just be an outright villain, right? And then you know he's gone back and forth, a little more of an anti-hero, but still more on the villain side than anything. But now, of course, with Dwayne Johnson wanting to play him, I feel like and, and what's happening in the comics more more on the hero side of things. I don't really see him that way, so I guess we'll see. Uh, they they showed a new costume off for the Grant. Gustin version of the flash with gold boots. I, I don't see what the big deal is, but he made a big deal about it. So uh, I don't know any thoughts on that Rocky on, on the, uh, on the, oh, on the flash. Yeah. It, no, I, I'm not a fan of the flash that, that shut that CW show should have been canceled a long time ago. I'm, I'm not a fan of the CW flash. It does nothing yeah, I, for me. And it, it takes away from the flash movie too, as far as I'm concerned, it waters yeah. down, it waters down the, the, the quality of the, it just, it's not good. It muddies the waters, you know, in my view. Yeah. And again, I, I, he made a big deal about getting gold boots. I, I didn't, I didn't get it. Uh, they showed a, uh, a little sneak peek of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Um, Jason Momoa, that's obviously the, the sequel. Uh, they didn't really, they, they showed some behind the scenes clips. They didn't really even have like a, a teaser for it the way they did for Black Adam. So not really much to say. Not really much to say there, uh, but in other Aquaman news, they did show a clip of the three-part uh, animated special coming out HBO Max for Aquaman King of Atlantis, which, you know, for, it, it seemed very much for kids. Um, I didn't really understand why his hair is green. It's a musical. It almost like was like a musical. Yeah. It was so that weird. Was, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's good for Aquaman fans. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought this was one of the, the cool things to come out of it. Um, we had Dennis Cowan and Reggie Hudlin from Milestone Media that jumped on there, talked a little bit about uh, comics milestone. They announced there's a blood syndicate series coming, but they also mm -hmm. announced uh, DC's next writer and artist workshop uh, for the next generation. The The next one is going to be a partnership with ally, which I guess is this kind of financial um, management platform. And it specifically focuses, uh, focuses on people that are kind of underprivileged, try to get them to take advantage of, of budgeting and managing their money without kind of predatory fees and whatnot. So they are allies teaming up with Milestone and DC so that the next workshop is going to focus on creators of color. So I thought that was really good. You know, we always need more diverse voices in, in comics to kind of tell, uh, you know, more relevant stories. And I, I think we're in a golden age of that and it's gotten much better, but obviously there's still a long way to go. So I, I thought that was a pretty cool uh, announcement for sure. Yeah, I thought uh, what interested me about that is that I thought that they were going to for so, I kept waiting for them to say that that was for certain groups or certain ethnic groups or uh, for the for certain minorities or just to uh, diversify their their base, but uh, diversify their writing. But it sounds as if that uh, it's open invitation to all underprivileged, regardless of race, which, you know, I mean, yeah. I guess the, you know, it's good to hear, you know, because I mean, obviously underprivileged applies to everything. And I, it was nice to hear that uh, at least they, they didn't seem to, you know, they didn't seem to identify either gender or race in when they talked about underprivileged, which I th thought, I thought they were very careful not to do that, which was interesting. Yeah. And the other thing is, it sounds like DC is totally revamping their whole kind of talent search um, protocol which I think it's been good, 
recently, but it's been more and you look at the names and, and again, I'm not, I don't want to single anybody out or, or say they haven't been doing a good job. I think the guys that have been running it, you know, Scott Snyder has been involved. Joshua Williamson has been involved. You know, they are trying to help, but it, it seems like a lot of the creators they bring in are creators that have worked in independent comics already or names that if, if you're kind of like us and live in the world of comics, you already know. Um, so, you know, are you really expanding and bringing in more people or are you just helping the people that are already in kind of raise their profile, which, which is totally valid, but it sounds like they're going to be reaching out more to, to people who are having a hard time breaking in regardless of, of race or color. Cause even after this first one, that's going to focus on persons of color and, and underserved communities to keep this format, which again, I think will help people that are, that are still feel like they're on the outside uh, trying to get in. Uh, next thing they did was they showed a, a Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League trailer for the Rocksteady studio game, which a lot of the stuff that they showed, I was like, man, we saw this last year and it's still not out yet. Like, I guess COVID and it's causing problems with, you know, people working from home, things taking longer. But I just feel like, God, the Batman movie should should have been out already. The Suicide Squad movie, should, at least I feel like it should have been yeah. out already. But But it looked like it was fun. You know, if you're a gamer, I'm not. But if you're a gamer, I guess maybe you'll be into that. Uh, the next thing they showed, and, th and this has me excited, but not for the reasons you think, but I'm gonna let Rocky comment on it first. They showed a, a, a teaser trailer for the Peacemaker TV show that's going to be coming on HBO Max. What'd you think of that, Rocky? Well, I, I, I thought it was as good as you could be expected for Peacemaker. I, I didn't like the Peacemaker character in, in the Suicide Squad movie. I, I thought he was a reprehensible person and I, I didn't find him to be his humor in the in the Suicide Squad movie didn't, never made up for my dislike of his character. Uh, but it sounds as if potentially there might be some redemption for the character in the series or that it was hinted at when uh, when the when the director and the cast when they when they all got together and they had their their conversation fo uh, following the uh, the teaser trailer, so we'll have to wait and see. I'm I'm certainly going to watch Peacemaker. I you know it, it the preview looked really funny. I actually enjoyed. I thought it was I thought it was uh, the the cast seemed to meld very well in the preview, and I thought it was funnier than a lot of the moments in the Suicide Squad movie involving Peacemaker. So I'm I'm definitely I'm definitely going to be checking out that series, and I hope it hits. I really hope it does. Yeah, I still haven't seen the Suicide Squad movie, and I, I know I need to. I need to make time to be able to just sit down and watch it w without any distractions. I just haven't had time. Um, but that was – I didn't I, – I had no plans to really watch the the Peacemaker series. I haven't – you know, like I said, I haven't seen the Suicide Squad movie. But here's the thing where I was like, oh, I, I really need to watch the Suicide Squad movie, and I, I need to be – I'm going to be watching this right when it comes out. And it's not because I like Peacemaker or don't like Peacemaker – uh, or John Cena or James Gunn, the writer, director, whatever. It has nothing to do with that. It has 100% to do with seeing one of my favorite DC characters, if not my favorite DC character, on the on the small screen and knowing he's going to be on this series. But it could be that I watched the first issue and they don't really give me a version of that character that I enjoy. And so then I'll just, I won't watch it. But that's Vigilante. Uh, it better be Adrian Chase. The costume looked dead on. That's what had me excited. I'm watching the trailer and John Cena is doing whatever, cracking jokes, but I'm just, I'm hyper-focused on whenever Vigilante showed up for those, you know, few frames here or there. Uh, he's just one of my favorite characters and I, I hope they do him just as I, you know, and I don't well, mind. It doesn't have to be the Adrian Chase version from the comics where he's super serious and stoic or whatever. If they, if they play him for comedic relief or whatever, as long as it's done well, um, I'll enjoy it. Uh, so 
I guess I'll I'll have to wait and see. His, his costume looked really good. Like I looked really his good. His costume like... looked dead on. Yeah. Like from the comics. So, uh, well, moving on, they did give us a sneak preview of Superman and Beyond, which is a new uh, animated series. It focuses on Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen, and it's a it's a, a African American Jimmy Olsen, which I thought was interesting, but I think will totally work. So that looked kind of fun. Um, and then Jim Lee popped on, and I mentioned this uh, briefly before. Uh, he said he specifically announced there's a new motto for Superman. Instead of truth, justice, and the American way, it's now truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. I thought this was a big misstep from from DC to come on there and, and talk about what's going on in the current Superman comic. That was fine, but for Jim Lee to come on there and say, "Hey, this is a this is the new motto for Superman." Um, again, I just thought it was a total, it, it wasn't necessary to do that. All you're doing is feeding the trolls and giving, you know, power to the, to, you know, people who won't be named that go on to make rage inducing YouTube videos and, and want to rant and rave about things because 2011 during the, uh, James Michael Straczynski storyline where Superman was walking around the country, th there was a story there and the right. You know, the conservatives got all mad at that point because Superman in that storyline came right out and said um, that he was having a problem with the U.S. government. He, I don't want to be a tool for the U.S. government. I, I'm not Superman for America. I'm Superman for the world. It's been that way for 10 plus years um, that there's been some political backlash or whatever. And so yeah. it's been 10 years in my mind that Superman's abandoned the truth, just and the truth, justice in the American way. Uh, at least in the comics, maybe it hasn't been clear to people in other media, but so what? That doesn't matter if whether it's clear to them or not, whether they got the message or not. Just tell the stories you need to tell uh, without, you know, being overtly uh, kind of xenophobic or or nationalistic or or whatever label you want to put on it. Because here's the thing that people don't understand: that truth, justice, and the American way that only came out like in the '40s during the radio serial. That's where that first showed up. So it's not like that's been a part of the character. From the very beginning, you know, um, but, I, you know, Superman, as he's become, you know, more worldwide and more popular, people just identify him as a, an American creation and he's part of Americana. And that won't change regardless of what his slogan is. But and I get I, I agree that he's he shouldn't be Americanized and it shouldn't be truth, justice, the American way. I don't think it should be that way. I think this is a better slogan, but I just think putting it out there overtly doesn't serve any purpose. Uh, I don't see that it does anything other than give fodder and ammunition to the people that want to tear things down and want to be divisive and want something to be angry about. So I don't know. I thought that was a big, big mistake. And again, it's 10 years too late, DC. You did this 10 years ago and a bunch of articles are written about it. And so you should have learned the lesson already. You knew this was going to happen. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I thought that was a big misstep, maybe the biggest misstep of the whole uh, event. What did you think about that, Rocky? Any I thoughts didn't on it? Yeah, well, I, I I didn't mind that they mentioned it. Quite frankly, I mean, look, you're, you're gonna piss off you're gonna piss off certain groups no matter what you do anyway. And stating the obvious that Superman stands for a better tomorrow, I mean, of of course he does. I mean, this isn't news to anyone who's paying attention or anyone who's reading comic books in the last, like you said, the last ten twenty years. Good grief! And so, I mean, but I do think of of all of all the things for DC to sort of say something fairly obvious I, I i thought that should be fairly harmless and quite frankly people that are criticizing it i think really look stupid i mean i mean you're gonna criticize it i mean really dude, it's not 
they, they sound idiot. They're, they sound, they just sound foolish. And it's, it's yeah. not an attack on America. In fact, it's a very, um, it's a very American thing to do to acknowledge that in America, striving for a better tomorrow is what it is, that it's not just, a, you know, how it's, it's a very big and noble thing for America in general to recognize that the greatest hero on the planet stands for a better tomorrow. Uh, but he still has American roots and he still was born and raised with American values uh, in his origins. There's still a lot for America and proud conservatives to be proud to, to be happy for if they stop and think about it, if, if, if in fact they want to take that kind of an issue with it. So I, it didn't bother me so much. And frankly, Hey man, if you're going to wrinkle some, you know, if they're going to wrinkle some feathers, so be it. I mean, they, I, of all the things they did, I, I'm not going to, uh, you know, they can't please everybody. And, and at some point they have to maybe put their foot down. And if, if it's, if it's a better tomorrow, well, so be it. But that, that didn't bother me. That didn't bother me. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can see your point. They're trying to, to, to take a stand and make a difference. And I guess I can respect that. But again, I just felt like it's been that way for 10 years already that the American <laughs> way part of it's been, uh, you know, kind of abandoned. Um, and, and again, not, not the values of it, like you said, but just, we you need to make it clear. This isn't a nationalistic stance for Superman. So anyway, then we got a, a, a sneak peek of DC's league of super pets, which, which is another, uh, this is actually a, a, a big screen animated film that's coming out, uh, supposed to hit, uh, movie theaters on May 20th, 2022 with a bunch of big names, Dwayne Johnson, Kevin Hart, John Krasinski, uh, Kate McKinnon, Keanu Reeves. So that, that should be a lot of fun. Uh, there was a sneak peek of the next season of Doom Patrol. It was announced they got a, a fourth season, I guess, of Doom Patrol. Matt Bomer, who plays, uh, I think, was it Radioact Radioactive Man, I think, is or Negative Man. Um, he was the one that made the announcement that there's going to be uh, another season. So I, I don't watch Doom Patrol, but I guess if you do, you'd be pretty happy. Uh, and then they also gave a sneak peek of The Flash. Rocky mentioned it earlier, Ezra Miller who was wearing quite an interesting outfit uh, to DC Fando with like this dog collar. I, I, I don't know. I thought it was weird. Um, but yeah, we got, uh, we got some scenes of the flash. I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit underwhelmed. I like Ezra Miller as an actor and I like his portrayal. Like I like what he does, what he did in justice league with the character of flash, but it just, it doesn't feel like any version of Barry Allen. I've ever, he feels more like a Wally West than a, than a Barry Allen either. So I'm not sure why they decided to make him Barry Allen, but I, I, I don't, I don't know. I I'm apprehensive on how good that flash movie is going to be, but at least it's leaning into the idea of the multiverse, which I guess could be either good or bad, depending on if they make it too confusing or not. But any thoughts on the, the flash trailer? Uh, I, when it comes to the flash, I, I very much, I was wondering who the Batman is. I'm sure it's Michael Keaton. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, uh, it, it seemed very, it was obviously very generic. You know, you could, you could, they were just giving us the bullet points. It's obvious that he's going to go back in time because he talks about time going back in time. It's, it's, you know, he goes back in time. You could tell he's, he almost touches his mother. And of course, the flashpoint paradox was created when he saves his mother's life and all chaos ensues from that. So it was, it really was just a teaser uh, because like, you know, like, like, like Ezra Miller said, they're, they're not, I don't think they filmed enough of it to really put together an adequate teaser, but it was enough to put a smile on my face anyway. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, they also talked a little bit about the Sandman TV series that's coming up with Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer Morningstar. Uh, they talked extensively about the injustice uh, 
video game franchise that's coming to uh, a comic series or well, was a comic series and is now uh, coming to the, the DC animated film uh, library. Uh, there was a talk of Blue Beetle. Again, no footage to be seen, but the uh, the directors and the star of Blue Beetle showed up. Uh, they talked a little bit about Monkey Prince, switching it back over to comics, which is uh, a, a character that was in the, the Asian one-shot that Rocky and I covered uh, a few months ago. And Gene Luen Yang is the writer. Bernard Chang's the artist. They're both Asian, so uh, they're the right ones to bring this character to life. And I was a bit underwhelmed by that story. It didn't really do a lot for me, but DC seems to be putting a lot of clout behind that. So hopefully it'll be a good series. Uh, in, in other video game news, uh, other than the Suicide Squad Justice League one, we got an extensive preview of Gotham Knights, which is looks very much like the whole Arkham Asylum game to me, um, but it's going to have a lot to do with Court of Owls, so Snyder and Capullo were actually on there talking a lot about that. Then we saw a sneak peek for, uh, for Batwoman, the third season. I'd never watched any Batwoman. I guess she has some villain called Alice, and now this season she's teaming up with Alice. Um, I thought that the trailer was was terrible, <laughs> to be honest with you. I don't watch it, and I was like, <laughs> watching this trailer? Why would anyone watch this? I, I didn't like it at all. I did, even, even Batwing couldn't save it for me. Yeah, well, uh, they, apparently Poison Ivy and Mad Hatter are going to be the villains for the next uh, season of Batwoman, and I and I have not yeah. watched it either. So it's yeah, it, it, it looked it just it looked to me like low budget, poor quality, and and like like the Batman sixty six show, but yeah, like that campy, but not on purpose. Yeah, you know? the, the actress that plays Batwoman, she she did a nice presentation. She seems like a very nice, yeah. uh, very she, nice young yeah. woman, very attractive, and uh, so it's no no no. Nothing against her, of course, but uh, it's just, it just, yeah, the I, first season rubbed me the wrong way. And I just, you know, I, I, I'm probably doing her a disservice. I probably should check it out, in fairness to her. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if the show is like that, the same tone as the trailer, but it was the tone. It wasn't the, the acting of anybody, it was the tone of the trailer. It just didn't, I don't know. It seemed, it just seemed bad. <laughs> I don't know what other way to put it. Uh, we also got a preview for another DC animated feature that's coming up soon Catwoman Hunted. That looked pretty solid. Great looking um, animation. And it seemed like it was capturing the feel of Catwoman very, very well. Yes. Very much so. Uh, I, yeah. Look, yeah. That looked fantastic. I'm very much looking forward. But kind of an anime an anime feel to the to the style of the cartoon, which which I find interesting because I normally am not a big fan of anime style. But th there was a – I sort of like the slightly different animated approach with the Catwoman uh, animated. That, that was – it looks very interesting. Yeah, it definitely looked high quality. We got a uh, sneak peek of the seventh season of DC Legends of Tomorrow. Again, a show that I haven't watched, so uh, <laughs> check out the trailer if you're so inclined. They talk a little bit about Batman Unburied, which is an original narrative podcast. It's produced by David S. Goyer, so right there, that's enough for me to know. I don't need to pay any attention to it because he's probably going <laughs> to screw something up. But it has a pretty star-studded cast, and if you're into the whole um, – I mean, I, I just assume listen to an audio book. Um, but I don't know, these, these narrative podcasts seem to be taken off. And to me, it's, that's just, just call it an audio book. That's basically what it is. You're telling an audio story. It's so interesting, right? Like we're, we're, it's yeah. like we're traveling back in time. Now we're getting radio drama, you know, but they're not radio. They're on podcasts instead. Um, you know, like the old school, uh, little orphan Annie or, uh, or Dick Tracy or yeah. Lone Ranger or whatever. It's kind of, kind of funny. Uh, we got a little sneak peek of the Batgirl movie, which that looks, uh, looks pretty interesting no footage yet again they're not far enough uh, in the production but 
we got to uh, see the actress who's playing Batgirl, Leslie Grace, along with the writer, Christina Hudson, and the uh, directors. So they talked about bringing uh, Barbara Gordon to life. That's exciting. Uh, Titans, another announcement for a season four. So if you're a fan of that show, it's coming back. And then Harley Quinn showed up. Um, Kaylee Kuako, I think is her name, Akuko. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not. Apologies to her. <laughs> uh, but she's she does a great job as Harley Quinn's voice. I'm not a Harley Quinn fan, so I've never watched the uh, the animated show on uh, on HBO Max. But from everything I've heard, it's very true to kind of the tone that Jimmy uh, Palmiani and Amanda Connor had, except they, they get to go even farther because it's like R-rated. So, uh, But I think she does a fantastic job. She, she sounds very much like what I would think Harley would sound like in my head, um, but not so far down that path of that Brooklyn accent that gets kind of annoying. And then um, there was also uh, a preview for Batman the Cape Crusader, which is sort of a continuation or at least a spiritual sequel to Batman the Animated Series. So Matt Reeves is directing the Batman movie, J.J. Abrams, Bruce Timm, they're all getting together and they're giving us more uh, Batman animated series basically, but it's called Batman the Cape Crusader. Todd McFarlane popped by, talked a little bit about the new deal McFarlane Toys has to continue the Batman Black and White statue series and a bunch of other great um, Batman. It's all Batman. You know, it's DC. It's all Batman toys that are coming out. Uh, Young Justice is having um, a new uh, movie coming out called Young, Ju Young Justice Phantom. So we got uh, a trailer for that. They talked about DMZ, which is Brian Wood's story that's being uh, adapted into uh, a live action i think it's yeah it's four, it's a four-part miniseries that's coming on hbo max we got a sneak peek at naomi which i thought looked pretty good um ava duvernay uh dc tv project um sprinkle my brian michael bendis jamal campbell david o, uh, f walker's creation i thought it looked pretty solid um so go check out the trailer for that if you're so inclined uh, a little sneak peek of Shazam Fury of the Gods. Again, no footage, but we got to hear from the actors that are involved in that. It, uh, we had a current Wonder Woman creators pop on to talk about her 80th anniversary. And like I mentioned uh, about the during the solicits, Trial of the Amazons, a big event coming for 2022. Uh, there was a behind the scenes look at Sweet Tooth, which already had been announced that there was another season of that coming on Netflix. There was an, another announcement for another series. Are you getting the what I'm talking about here about not much comic stuff and all movie and TV stuff? Pennyworth is getting another season, no longer on Epics, but now on HBO Max. So again, this is why this it didn't really interest me that much. It was a four hour commercial for movie and TV stuff. I would have liked more comics, and it didn't have the interaction because it's not live. Uh, and that's what I when I go to conventions, that's what I'm looking for the interaction to be able to ask questions and whatnot. And that just wasn't there. But anyway, uh, Pennyworth is a good show. I've met the guy who plays Pennyworth. He's a great guy. Um, uh, and I think uh, Jack O'Bannon is his name. And I, th I think if you enjoy that show, it'll be just as good on HBO Max. And then finally, the last thing they did, of course, they saved it for last because it was the one thing that everybody tuned in for, was the, the, the Batman trailer for the movie from uh, Matt Reeves. And again, I have my doubts. I didn't like the trailer they released last year during last year's Fandom. I'm not a fan of Robert Pattinson. I'm not a fan of what we saw of him as Batman. I did think this trailer did a much better job of, of making this look like an interesting movie, but I'm still worried. And the biggest reason I'm worried is the fact that this is taking, so they wrapped up filming almost a year ago now. Uh, well, at least nine months ago. And, and they're still working in post-production and you've heard all the stories about, you know, whether, and again, I Warner brothers tried to play them down, but I've heard from other people that it actually was, 
pretty close to the truth, but who knows? The truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. But you've heard these stories about Matt Reeves showing um, kind of a test clip or, you know, without all the post-production and special effects added in, but showing the executives at Warner Brothers a movie and started a screaming match. I'm just worried that, I mean, a, a good movie, it's like a dance and it comes together kind of seamlessly with all the parts working. I've talked to so many different creators about, whether it's a comic or a TV show or a movie about catching lightning in a bottle and everybody's on the same page and they're all pulling in the same direction. And although it's still hard work, everything comes together seamlessly and, and things don't drag on and you're not constantly going back trying to fix things. And that's what it seems like is happening with this Batman movie. So I'll still probably go and see it. Uh, I'm not, I'm more likely to go see it now after the second trailer than I was for the first trailer but I still have a lot of reservations about whether or not this is going to be good. And being that Batman is, is the character at DC comics and the one that's supposed to, you know, make the engine go and pay the bills. If they screw this up and it ends up being bad uh, again, I just think you're setting the D whole DC cinematic universe back again. Like, okay, now what are we going to say? Now what do we do? Do we just erase everything and start all over? Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the problem is over there. I really don't. Marvel seems to get it right. Maybe DC needs to give Kevin Feige like seventy-eight bajillion dollars to go over there and fix things for them. So, well, I'll be, I don't know. What, what did, yeah, what did you think, Rocky? I'll be a little bit of an outlier here. I I had serious thoughts about Robert Patterson last year when I saw the when I saw that uh, Batman preview or the Batman t or the first trailer. But this one looks really good. Uh, you know, this feels like a different Batman. This feels like a, a different Batman, which is. And I can't believe I'm saying that because we've had a lot of different Batman from Michael Keaton to to Val Kilmer to uh, George Clooney to uh, uh, Ben Affleck. And I'm sure I missed a couple in there. And uh, this is just uh, this. This is really good. I, I can't believe how angry Robert Pattinson. This is an angry Batman, a young Batman, but filled with anger. And this almost had a horror feel to it. And I just I really felt when, when the penguin, it was you know, was being chased by Batman and there's that explosion and, and the car comes through and, and he, and the penguins car flips over at the end and the way that trailer ends. And you, you, you see that upside down version of, you, you see Batman walking out of the flames with his cape flapping in the background, walking toward penguins vehicle. And he's upside down just like a bat <laughs> because the penguin sees him upside down. It, it's, I think it, visually it was a mass. It was just masterful that trailer. And I just hope the movie uh, comes through and is is ten percent of what that trailer suggests it might be. So my fingers are crossed. And and the cinematography with that scene with the silhouette of Catwoman and Batman that was right out of a comic book, man. And so there, you know, as a comic book lover, if they can pull off scenes like that in this movie and still have that resonance and the gravitas that I felt in the trailer, I'll be very, I'll be a very happy uh, DC fan. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was so much to like. I loved Catwoman's look. Um... Not that familiar with Zoe Kravitz, but I thought, wow, she she's got the look. The visuals were were stunning. Um, I, I just again, every time Pattinson's on the screen, I'm like, he looks way too small to be to be Batman. But <laughs> I, I, you know, I'll 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 see what happens. Um, one thing that was interesting, you noticed throughout everybody talking about the Batman movie, a lot of them were wearing the Batman the Imposter shirt, which is the series from uh, the screenwriter that we talked about last week. Um, and I mentioned in there when he takes his his mask off in the comic, he looks like Robert Pattinson. I didn't like that. Clearly there may not be out and out saying it, but clearly from everything I've seen and from the way things were promoted and talked about the Robert 
Pattison Batman, that version apparently is the same version of Batman that's starting in Batman the Imposter. Well, it's the and same I, director. It's the same writer. It's a, the director wrote. Yeah, didn't, yeah, the Matt, same Matt, the guy. That, yeah, the screenwriter. No, Matt, wrote so that. Matt, Matt, yeah, Matt Reeves is the director, but Matson Tomlinson, I think, is his Matt's name. Matson Tomlinson is the screenwriter. Yeah. He's the, He's screenwriter the screenwriter for, for the movie. For, yeah, for, yeah, for uh, Matt Reeves, the Batman. Yeah, so it's and not surprising. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if it's going to have that same tone that Batman the Imposter did, I guess, uh, yeah, and I, I hope I'm wrong. You know, I hope Robert Pattinson blows me away and I'm, you know, sitting here six months from now or however long it is after I see the movie with my foot in my mouth going, oh, Robert Pattinson's my favorite Batman ever. I don't think that'll happen because Ben Affleck as Batman still exists. But I don't know. I guess we'll see. Uh, anyway, that's all the the, the DC fandom news. Um, there's plenty of articles out there. There's plenty of trailers on YouTube you can go and check out if you want to to see more. Uh, let's dive into the books for this week. Speaking of Batman and Black Label, we have a uh, a Batman adjacent Black Label book from creator Cliff Chang. He's he's writing it. He's drawing it. He's coloring it. He's even lettering it. It's called Catwoman Lonely City. And uh, I'm I'm not a big fan of Cliff Chang's art style. His stuff's a little too angular for me. But he's a fantastic storyteller. I mean, that's just a personal choice in terms of of you know rendering and line work. But he's a fantastic storyteller, and I, I love the choices he makes. He uses a lot of silhouettes, uses a lot of widescreen, panoramic views to kind of set tone and mood. Uh, and I think all that works really really well in this Catwoman story. Um, I do sort of wish that either he didn't color it himself or somebody else colored it or, or he just chose to to have it with a brighter color palette. I get why he's choosing to use such a muted palette. Basically, the story is Batman died 10 years ago on uh, when some big disaster befell Gotham City and Catwoman herself barely survived it. And that was um, that was how she got captured, basically. And she's been in Blackgate prison for the last 10 years um so you know she gets out she's she's still trying to figure out what her role is going to be going forward you know she's she's much older now she can't really physically do the things she used to do you know bad back bad knees whatever um not to mention any injuries that she had from that that disastrous night It's, it's called fool's night um and so it it's it's very much a different Gotham City that's sort of run down and and cynical but at the same time it's supposed to be a you know to use a, a word that we were talking about earlier Superman slogan a brighter tomorrow right like Bruce Wayne when he died he died on that night fool's night in Catwoman's arms and he left all his money to Gotham City and they started a bunch of programs to help the poor and the unfortunate and again it's sort of getting into that that conversation that happens from time to time about what well, Bruce Wayne could do more with his money if he just helped out with social programs than he can as Batman. He could do more good. Um, and this is sort of addressing that, right? So Harvey Dent, who redeemed himself as two, you know from being the villain Two-Face, redeemed himself on that night by re- helping out and rescuing people or whatever, uh, and in his own words, embracing the things that Two-Face had to say. Apparently, he's found a way to meld the two different sides of his personality uh harvey dent's a mayor but it doesn't seem like he's all on the up and up because apparently we learned that he manipulated this release of catwoman because he's after something that that bruce wanted uh for the city some program or software or 
some something uh, called Orpheus. We don't even know exactly what it is at this point. But um, so it's it's an interesting setup. This ten years in the future with Harvey Dent as mayor trying to do good and supposedly Gotham City being better and safer, um, but at what cost? Like there's there's like armored police officers that their armor sort of resembles Batman. So in a way, a little bit of a magistrate feel uh, like this fascist police force that's people are, are losing out on their freedoms. Everybody's going to have to wear a, a G band or Gotham band so they can be tracked. So you're, you're giving up freedom for safety, which obviously is, is relevant uh, in this time where we're talking about, Hey, give up a little freedom, get a vaccination and, and try to you know help out the people who can't. So a lot of relevant topics here from Cliff Chang, and I'm sure he's been working on this for a long time. I'm sure long before the, the uh, pandemic and the vaccine or whatever. Um, so it's really going back to the idea of freedom versus safety, which, you know, in this country with 9-11, that's where, the, where that whole sort of debate really started uh, in earnest. But I, I really enjoyed this, despite the fact that I'm not the the biggest fan of, of Cliff Chang's rendering. Uh, just again, his, his art's a little angular for me. I, I love everything else about it. Um, it's, it's just not real fluid to me. And especially when you're doing, you're talking about a Catwoman story, it should be fluid. Um, but the, the most art I've seen of him was on Wonder Woman. And I kind of feel the same way. Uh, he should, shouldn't draw female books in my mind because the way he draws things like they're so angular. It, it doesn't, it just doesn't give that sense of softness that I would want on a Wonder Woman book or a Catwoman book for that matter. But it's a, it's a minor nitpick. Like I was totally engrossed in the story. Uh, like I said, I love the choices he makes. It would feel a little different with a brighter palette though. And I, I, I mean, maybe he's purposely trying to make it feel super dystopian and, and depressing. Um, but I just thought it would pop the artwork would, would pop a little more and it would feel the story would feel a little more dynamic with a brighter color palette, but all in all, I thought it was a pretty solid debut. Um, and I know a lot of people have been looking forward to it. So, uh, I expect it to do quite well and, and I expect it to get really good reviews. what do you think, Rocky? I, I, I like it. Uh, you know, it's funny because I know, I know Tom King loves Catwoman, uh, but, uh, Tom King, I, I, I find, and we'll be talking about that cat later. I, I find that Tom King has too much of a love affair with, uh, Selena. He makes her too much of a, frankly, a little bit too much of a Mary Sue, in my opinion. Uh, I like Cliff Shang here. His he his Selena is much more down to earth and much more flawed, and is old and ragged and uh, <laughs> maybe that's a little harsh, but she's definitely she's not in her prime anymore. This is ten years later. She spent time in jail. Uh, there was uh, many people that died on the day that uh, you know Dick Grayson is dead, Alfred is dead, Batman is dead, and the on the day in question that led to all that, it it you know Selena got. Catwoman got blamed and was put in jail for it. And it's 10 years later. And it looks as if somebody has let her out of jail, uh, perhaps uh, if, with uh, with an agenda to to find out something about this Orpheus and uh, this 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 project Orpheus or whatever it might be. And it's 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 uh, it's interesting. I you know, it's interesting. It's also interesting that you mentioned the uh, Cliff Shang's art itself. I thought the coloring could be could be a little. They're very muted, uh, muted, and and perhaps they could be a little bit more uh, eye popping. But I and I I do believe you're right that the coloring was intentional. It's funny that Cliff Shang, you know, he, you know, uh, I always find that his rendering of of women isn't. There's something about it that's enticing, and yet it's it doesn't. It hasn't really caught on. It's not. He's not known for being someone that draws women 
you know, spectacularly well. Yet he drew Wonder Woman. He drew Paper Girls, for God's sakes. I mean, these very popular characters that, you know, it's all women. And and it's sort of, um, it's interesting that he's, uh, but he, he's got a particular style of art that, uh, uh, that, that I think does resonate with people. I like this. I think the story, I'm, I'm really curious. This, this poses a lot of questions. This is 10 years later. I mean, with an older Barbara Gordon, an older Oracle, a, a very disheveled, uh, Selena. Uh, this is a very, um, you've mentioned how we've sort of gotten the story before with the backdrop with the magistrate and how Gotham city is, is often, you know, it's, you know, this is, a, you know, now it's almost a police state, but now it's, it's a, it's not a totally dystopian future here, but it's, it's one that is, you know, you know, the, the good guys are gone and it's a very different Gotham City. I like it that this is Batman free. That this this gives uh, Salinas time to shine as Catwoman. You know, a, a Gotham City without Batman, without Nightwing, uh, with, with, with Oracle or with Barbara Gordon, who is no longer an Oracle. This is a very different future and... I'm I'm really curious to see what Kif, Kif Shang is going to bring to the table when this series ends. So this I'm definitely going to be checking out future issues. And yeah, I I, I give this a I give this a solid uh, solid seven out of ten. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really good. Uh, all right, up next we're going to talk about Black Manta. This is part two of I think it's is it five or six issue uh, two of six. Uh, another mini series. Chuck Brown is the writer. Valentine Delandro is the artist. Marissa Louise does colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, really interesting here. I, I feel like for the first time ever, DC is trying to take Black Mana and, and turn him into an anti-hero or somebody other than a, a just an out, out villain. I don't know if that's because of the popularity that he, he achieved from showing up in the Aquaman movie or, or what exactly is going on. But, you know, talking about those solicits for January, like I was mentioning before, we do know that Brandon Thomas is writing an Aquaman uh, miniseries, which is going to bring back Arthur Curry and uh, obviously Jackson Hyde. I think Black Manta is going to be in that as well. So uh, kind of interesting because in, in this particular issue with Black Manta trying to figure out what's going on with this stone that's um, that's causing him pain and, and uh, affecting him negatively, uh, he goes on sort of a fact finding mission. And he, se he seems, I mean, obviously he's going to be the, sort of the main character or the protagonist of his own miniseries, but he comes across as like a hero actually in this story where he's fighting against, you know, people who are possessed by, uh, by demons or, or something. And, and he's fighting against gentleman ghost, which I I'm a sucker. Gentleman, put gentleman ghost in a comic and I'm there. He's, he's one of my, favorite, most underused uh, DC villains. So uh, it, it had very much a, a different feel. It, it's a, felt like a transitional issue. Um, and I'm still sort of struggling a little bit with what I talked about in the first issue. Black Manta has always been a very technical, science-based character to me. And, and they're mixing him in with sort of mythology and magic and Themyscira and that sort of corner of the DC universe, which... I just don't know that that works for me, but obviously we're only two issues in, so I guess we'll we'll have to to hold out and see how it goes. Um, I've talked at length before about Valentine Delandro's art. I'm just not a fan. It's it's a little too unfinished for me. It's a little too unpolished. Um, and there, 
the other thing about it is the real light on backgrounds. And in this particular issue, it's a lot of big panels, which led to a very fast paced issue. And it felt like we didn't get a big chunk of story. So uh, I wasn't a big fan of the art, but I, I am enjoying this series. Um, but I don't know that I can recommend it yet because it, I just don't know where it's going. We're two issues in, we're a third of the way done. And it feels like we're barely still establishing things. So what were your thoughts, Rocky? I, you know, this, I had to read this uh, comic book twice and I can't believe I took the time to do so since we're, we had to read 15 comic books this week again, but you know, that just goes to show how much time I had on the weekend, which I can't believe I'm admitting, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. I was drinking Corona. So it, it helped cushion the blow. Um, uh, we actually, this was actually interesting. This actually, there's a little bit of a, an indirect crossover with, with a subject uh, that's going to be happening in Nubia and the Amazons. You know, you mentioned Gentleman Ghost shows up. Uh, they're, they're, what uh, Black Manta's doing along with his uh, partner, Ga uh, Miss Gallo, is that they're, they've identified the stone, one of the agents that they speak to, one of their uh, people that's helping them out, this Dr. Shin, uh, identifies the stone from mythology. It's, it's this oraculum stone, and it's, it's a magic ore that's forged by the, by the lost tribe of, of Atlanteans. And it apparently has some effect on humans that have some remnant DNA from Atlanteans in their makeup. And so there's a suggestion here that Black Manta might in fact be, might have Atlantean DNA in him. And it's very interesting. So I think that, I think that DC Comics editorially, if I didn't know better, I think that they were, they're making Black Manta more relevant and, and indirectly making Jackson Hyde more relevant by making, by establishing a genetic link between Black Manta and the lost tribe of Atlanteans, which I think is, uh, quite intentional and, uh, and, and quite interesting. Meanwhile, at, at Doom's doorway on Themyscira, Nubia and the Amazons, of course, they guard Doom's doorway from, from basically evil creatures coming up through Doom's doorway on Themyscira. Uh, there's this, there's this, mysterious woman that has appeared there as well and she has uh she doesn't she doesn't have a lot of memory of where she where she is or who she is exactly and uh the the amazons are uh well they they want to help her they want to actually help her out but it's unclear as to exactly I'm trying to bring it up here she's they're they're unclear as exactly what it is that you know what it is she's trying to remember i'm assuming that she's probably from uh maybe from the lost tribe of atlanteans and uh in any event she is why she ended up coming through doom's doorway is interesting is she an amazon is she an atlantean is there a link between amazons and atlanteans as well as humans in the dna that this oraculum stone is affecting how does this affect black manta uh it's it's really interesting. Meanwhile, there's another mysterious uh, African American that shows up in jail uh, in, in near the end, and it's this mysterious black young young black man shows up in jail in in Boston Seaport Police Station, and they ask and these police officers ask him who he is, and he mentions they ask him his name, and he says Turner Zange. Louverture and Garvey, and all those names have to do with Black uh, history. Uh, Zange is a country. I had a, I Google this. It was, and all these names are linked, and they're all Zange refers to a uh, 
state of religion, and it was a place the Zanj were shipped as slaves for centuries by Arab traders. The name Turner is a reference to Nat Turner, who was a, who who uh, instigated a famous slave rebellion in 1831. Loverture is a reference to Toussaint Loverture, who uh, converted a slave rebellion into a revolutionary movement in Haiti. (laughs) Garvey refers to Marcus Garvey, who's a Jamaican political activist and who's known for black nationalism. So it's clear here that writer Chuck Brown is clearly incorporating some black history here and some politics and some history of slavery in addition to linking uh, black manta to uh, through uh, genetically to ancient Atlanteans. And there's another one, uh, another female Atlantean slash something who's being entered, enters our world through Themyscira, through Doom's Doorway. Chuck Brown is weaving a tale here that's very interesting. If I have one criticism, it's that I had to work a little bit too hard to piece all these pieces together. I wish it would have read a little bit more clear. It's a little choppy. And I also agree with you in terms of the art, uh, Valentin Delandro. It is a little choppy on the art. It could be a little bit more clear. But I will give Chuck Brown credit that there is an interesting tale being weaved here. And I'm I'm really curious. I I think this is going to be a game changer for Aquaman fans in terms of Black Manta. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I forgot about that whole Atlantean DNA thing. And again, it just feels like they're they're sort of forcing us to see Black Manta in different in a different light. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'll just say this about DC villains in general: it's okay to have your villains be villains. Not everybody needs to be turned into a hero or an anti-villain. I mean, Harley yeah. Quinn, Poison Ivy, Lex Luthor, like you know, it just goes on and on and on and on about these villains that they turn into heroes, even if it's for a short period of time. Black Manta was always one of those that he was unrepentantly a bad guy. And I was totally fine with that. <laughs> Love Black Manta, fan of his. I, I just don't know that we need to go down that path with, with Black Manta, but whatever. I mean, if, if you're a, a creator and you're a huge fan, you're going to make him the hero of the story you're going to tell. So uh, I guess we'll see. Uh, next up, we have Batman Catwoman number eight. Uh, we wish you a Merry Christmas, which <laughs> so I was, I was getting ready to, for the recording tonight and I'm pulling up the credits page and it's, you know, this picture of the, uh, kind of the mansion with almost like a, um, an advent calendar kind of thing with all the different names, uh, you know, silent night upon the housetop, God rest you, Merry, Merry gentlemen, all the chapters names are names of, um, of Christmas songs. And, uh, my wife's like, Oh, are you reading a Christmas comic? I was like, you know what? Sort of sort of kind of because uh, it's set you know during the yuletide season except <laughs> it's a 12 issue series so it's actually going to take the whole year and then because of delays with the art it's actually taking more than a year um so it sort of loses that that holiday feel but maybe it'll wrap up in time for christmas well we know it's not going to but anyway it's written by tom king liam sharp handles the art and colors on this clayton cowell does the letters um Again, the art's fantastic. I love the fact they're bringing Liam in to help Clay Man out uh, a little bit. It's a it's a little bit of a different feel, um, but it really works for me. Uh, and I do feel like although we're we still have three separate storylines, they're starting like we've had enough of each of the the different timelines that they're starting to make sense to me. But you know, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but I I still don't think it's going to work as well as it's going to work when it's all said and, said and done and I can read all 12 issues in one sitting. 
then it'll make a heck of a lot more sense. And even as I'm reading these and I'm thinking, okay, I'm starting to understand what's going on in each of the three timelines. I was thinking to myself, you know, when I do go back and reread this all in one sitting, I wonder if it might behoove me to read all of one storyline, all of the second storyline, then all of the third storyline, like in the actual order, in chronological order, as opposed to reading that as it jumps around um, all the time. But it does feel like it's we're finally getting somewhere. I still don't know where that <laughs> destination is, uh, but at least it feels like it's getting close as to, uh, you know, in contrast to what was happening before where I just felt lost all the time. So uh, my opinion on this title still hasn't changed. Love the Liam Sharp art. And it's going to be, it's going to be read much better as a, a complete series, as opposed to a monthly. I think this just doesn't work as a monthly. So uh, well, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Well, I, I don't know. I'm, I have my doubts that it's going to read better for me because I have, I have, and I've said this before, man. I, I've been loving Tom King's Tom King's uh, st- uh, DC output right now, except for Bat Cat. I've been like lo- loving his Strange Strange Adventures that just wrapped up. His Rorschach wrapped up. That was great. Uh, and uh, I, we've been enjoying his uh, Supergirl World of Tomorrow. This here is one where I just I just try as I might. I'm I remain frustrated, and I guess I'll just say that it's 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 not working for me. Now, having said that, uh, this particular issue here, I don't understand how he's how he's writing Catwoman. I don't understand this Catwoman. She's uh, she apparently, you know, an older version of Catwoman in the future kills the Joker. Ostensibly, she kills the Joker in the future because of what Joker did in the past, namely for what the Joker did to Phantasm, to Andrea Beaumont, who is Phantasm from the Batman animated movie, uh, Mask of the Phantasm. And apparently the Joker killed Andrea's, uh, Andrea Beaumont's uh, son. Now, oddly here in this issue, Catwoman and the Joker end up confronting the adopted family of Andrea Beaumont's... Um, uh, let me rephrase that. The Phantasm and the Joker get together in the present... And the Joker takes Phantasm, and the Phantasm wants to kill the Joker. And I think the Joker uh, says to Phantasm at some point in the past, "I'll I'll take you to your your surviving child. I know where your your other your other daughter is." She ends up take, and so the Joker takes Phantasm to to see her daughter in this issue. Meanwhile, an older Selina Kyle goes to see the Joker in the morgue because Commissioner Dick Grayson got Joker's body after older Selina killed the Joker, and. And then we get these flashbacks of Selena being so angry with Bruce and so angry with Batman and saying things like, I lie to you, I lie and you, and you screw me, and then you get mad. I'll tell you the truth, and then you screw me, and then you get mad. And she's pouting. And Batman is trying to get Selena to just, look, help me find the Joker so we can prevent the Joker from killing all these children. And Selena is, is making it all about herself. She, Selena is selfish here. I don't recognize this Selena. I think she's borderline psychotic and evil. Uh, she makes it all about her. Batman's trying to reach her. Bra- Batman's trying to tell her that you're a better person than this. And she, you know, she just continues to bitch to him. You've got your Batarang and your Batmobile and your Batcave and, of course, your Batcat, you know. And, and, you know, you talk like I belong to you. And, and all Batman's trying to do is he's trying, you know, he's trying to save the children that are about to be gassed by the Joker. And... And I don't understand this this nonsense that's going on, and I don't recognize this Selena, and I just I find it really really 
frustrating because I can't get a handle on this narrative. I don't know why Selene is being so difficult to deal with. And uh, and at the end, I don't even understand really. I'm guessing Phantasm at the end ends up being attacked by the Joker once the Joker shows her her her, her daughter. But I'm not I'm not getting it here. And and I and I I hope that maybe if will this read better if I read it all as a trade? I I don't know. But in any event, I find myself asking a bunch of questions and I find that confuse me the more I ask myself the questions. And to the same extent that I'm really enjoying Tom King's other works, Batcat, it's just not working for me. And I can't recommend this myself. But, you know, again, Liam Sharp's art is absolutely spectacular. And I, I, you know, again, Tom King is gifted with great artists, even when his stories aren't up to task. But overall, this was a miss for me. But, um, you know, hopefully maybe we'll feel different when it comes out in trade. We'll see. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I say it's going to read better altogether as one story. I think it'll be less confusing. But the other thing is I, I'm assuming that by the time the story's all said and done, that we're going to have the answers to those questions. That yeah. might not actually be the case. So <laughs> it might not read better. You're, you're right. Um, and I do agree with you in terms of Catwoman. Um, I just, as much as I enjoyed the beginning of um, – of Tom King's Batman run more than the, the Snyder run. I, I think it did have problems. I think it took too long and it sort of goes, it sort of ties into the same issue I have with, um, with Nick Spencer's run on amazing Spider-Man. When you take 75 issues to basically tell one story, it just doesn't work for me that it, it's, it took too long. And I think that's why uh, Tom didn't even get to finish his, his, uh, his Batman run. It was just, it, I don't know if it was a creative choice or editorial problems. You know, we know the sliding timeline with a doomsday clock and whatnot and, and rebirth that was supposed to be fleshed out and then wasn't. Uh, But yeah, I mean, his whole story was, was a cat woman, Batman love story. And as much as I enjoy Catwoman as a character, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of that relationship, Batman, Catwoman. It doesn't, in a way it doesn't make sense to me. How can you be so, obsessed with stopping crime yet throw that all out the window for like sexual urges physical attraction to somebody it's never made that much sense to me and obviously it's at the heart of you know tom king's run so i was like almost like his run despite that yeah and yeah i i I agree like i i i feel the same way uh similarly uh, about catwoman as you do about the joker less is more and the fact that she's basically She's omnipresent these days in multiple books, in Batman books, in her own title, in this Batman Catwoman. It's like, give me a chance to miss her, you know? Like my favorite Catwoman stuff is the stuff back in the early 80s where she'd show up, she'd be planning a crime, someone would go on, she'd be there five or six issues, and she'd disappear for a year or, you know, a year and a half. Um, and that's just not the case anymore. So yeah, well, I, I, I find it I find it I- ironic that Selena spends more time talking to the Joker in this series than Batman. And she's having drinks with the Joker for like three issues now in front of her Christmas tree, and it it doesn't make any sense. And even Batman is criticizing her. Why do you keep going back and wanting to have talks with the Joker? And that's a very yeah. good question. And yeah. and he tolerates it. And it's it's insane what Batman is prepared to tolerate because it's Selena because she he happens to be madly in love with her. He compares her to a garden in this issue, like. Dick Grayson said, you know, he asked Batman, what, what, you know, you've, you've been with all these beautiful women, you know, you, you could have had maybe Wonder Woman or Lois Lane or all these other gorgeous women. 
you know, all all those. And Batman's answer was, well, there's roses and there's there's lilies, but then there's Selena. She's like the whole garden. And so, I mean, Batman, clearly Tom King's Batman loves Catwoman, but to the point where he lets her get away with just a ridiculous amount of crazy things that just don't resonate well with me. And that's one of the reasons why I don't know if multiple readings for me is are, are going to make me uh, appreciate his interpretation of Selena. But yeah, that's that's a fair point. Uh, all right, you know we're not done with Batman yet because it's DC. We have Batman versus Bigby, uh, a wolf in Gotham, chapter two, blow the house down, from writer and creator of Fables, Bill Willingham. Brian Level handles the art. Jay Lysing does the inks. Lee Luffridge on colors and Steve Wands on letters. Um, it really became clear to me in this issue that if you have read Fables, if you understand the Fables world, that you'll get a lot more out of this series because I have a feeling that the tone of uh, the entire story it probably is very similar to the tone of, of Fables. I haven't read any Fables. I don't, you know, only know what Monday means because Rocky told me. So uh, <laughs> it, it's it's still, even though I don't have any familiarity with Fables, uh, it's still an interesting story. I, I do like the Brian Level art. It's a little bit stylized and I think it works. It reminds me a little bit of... Um, uh, kind of a throwback to uh, an earlier time, like Newsboy Legion type stuff. When we see the, we see Dick Grayson training this sort of league or gang of Robins uh, was was pretty good. And then there's some there's some humorous lines here and there. So overall, I'm enjoying this, but I I do feel like I'm I'm sort of an outsider <laughs> reading this. You know, I'm not I'm not up on the in jokes. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, I don't really have that much desire to read fables, so I'm perfectly fine knowing this isn't for me in, in terms of you know being the, the exact target audience for it. Uh, and if I was willing to go and read fables, I'd probably get a lot more out of it. Yeah, but uh, but it's fine. Uh, I, I it's enjoyable. It's a good read. And I I don't think you have to read fables in order to read this. I just think if you do read fables, you're going to get more out of it. So, uh, so what do you think? Because I know you have read Fables, Rocky. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with you. Uh, I, I'm enjoying this a lot more because I've read Fables. A lot of my guesses, in fact, um, at least one of my guesses was right. Uh, Cinderella is, in fact, Molly Grace, who is sort of like the, uh, she's one of the investigators who uh, is sort of like in the Commissioner Gordon role. She is Cinderella. And Cinderella was kind of a, sp she's sort of like a super spy in the world of uh, Fables. And she she's a good spy in Monday world or the, the human world. And uh, I like what uh, writer Bill Willingham does here. I like uh, he actually has he gives some gravitas to Dick Grayson, who is a really good at training Robins. And he shows the training regimen that the Robins have the uh, with the ABC regimen of always be conquering. And, you know, Batman, <laughs> Batman is there with Robin and they're, they're training all these Robins and. Batman is, you know, he's he's really proud of Dick and how he's training all these young men to be potential replacements or they're they're you know they're warriors in the field. And so Willingham isn't just building up and referencing fables here. He's actually building up his own version and interpretation of Batman and the Batman family. And so I appreciate that. And and just to be clear, Willingham is is not is not unfamiliar with the Batman universe. I mean, uh, he did write he did write Batman back in the day. In fact, he was I think he's most famous for killing off uh, Spoiler back in the day and taking a lot of heat for that. Although Spoiler was ultimately brought back. Bill Willingham took a lot of heat for blaming Spoiler's death on Leslie Tompkins, which was such a fan outcry that they they actually brought brought Spoiler the character back. <laughs> but in any event, 
this this is really good because uh, the fables, of course, they're 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 they get their power from the belief system that people have when they read the fairy tales, and uh, and the this there's a floating event party event called the executive exchange uh, that that is held at different locations every half hour. Or, or this location of this party, this executive exchange, uh, every the 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 invitation is only sent out a half hour before the event occurs, and it involves all these these books that are being bought and 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 sold, and and uh, Bigby through his detective work because he's a quite he's a good pop detective himself. Both Bigby and Bruce Wayne end up at this at this event uh, because they're investigating uh, the the. the the murder of all these people by, by wolves. And of course, Bigby knows he's innocent and that even though it looks like Bigby may be a prime suspect, Bigby knows he didn't have anything to do with it, of course, but Bruce Wayne doesn't know that. And there's a really great exchange here between Batman and and Bigby. And uh, it's typical Batman. These are both very, these are both very powerful people that are very confident in their abilities. And in many ways, Bigby and Bruce Wayne have a lot in common and uh uh in fact bigby's got a very dysfunctional relationship with 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 his father and had a lot of trauma in his life whereas bruce wayne of course lost his his parents to trauma and but in in the in any event the this ends with massive explosions in in gotham city with bruce wayne rejecting bigby's offer to help and to to work together so it's batman that that rejects Bigby's overtures because Bigby's told by Cinderella, i.e. Molly Grace, that this Bruce Wayne, this Batman is probably a somebody you can rely upon. And of course, Bigby has his own scent and he's got his own instincts. He thinks he could trust this Batman. And of course, he knows Bruce Wayne is Batman because of the scent, which quite annoys Bruce, uh, Bruce Wayne. And this is really just the tip of the iceberg. This is just Bill Willingham is still building the plot in this issue, but to great effect. Uh, this is a big recommend for me if you're a fan of fables, and I'm pleased to hear that you could at least catch on to the story, even if you're not a big uh, uh, fables fan. Uh, I think that a lot of these other characters are going to be revealed to be fables as this story continues. So, fingers crossed. Yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, more Batman. We have the regular series, number 115, from writer James Tynan. Art is by Bengal and Jorge Jimenez in this particular issue. Tome Mori on colors, Clayton Cal on letters. It's part four of Fear State story that's going on. Um, I, I quite enjoyed this issue because I love the interaction between uh, Miracle Molly and Batman. Uh, the more I, I read of Miracle Molly, the more I enjoy her as a character. Um, I will say that despite me feeling pretty engaged and interested in what the fear state story was going to be as it, we were building up to it. Like at first, when I first heard about it, I was like, Oh no, I'm not. We just had a giant event with Joker war. Why do we have to have another one fear state? And then it was explained that basically fear state was happening because Joker war. I kind of bought into that. The buildup was good. The setup was good. The foundation was good. I thought I was going to be interested. And now that we're actually in fear state, the problem I'm having is it's it feels like it's moving along so slowly. Um, it, it's it's a big event, right? It's a big Batman event, so it should feel like there's consequences and it should feel like it's moving along and it's kind of a runaway train because that's how the regular books have felt to some extent. And I think you need to uh, ratchet up 
that sort of pace and feel when you get into a big event. And instead it's, it's slowed down. Things are happening at a slower pace. It's all, it's almost borderline boring to me uh, at this point. So it's really not working for me. I don't know. Maybe the event wasn't big enough to really be a line wide event with all the Batman books. So I, I don't know. For me, it's not really working as a whole. Um, maybe I'm just sick of the magistrate and Simon Saint, who Simon Saint appears to be increasingly incompetent uh, as the Fear State event rolls on, which makes me really doubt how Future State could have come to be. Um, but I guess we'll see. And, and there is a, a Batgirl's backup that we'll talk about uh, in a second. But I'll let Rocky comment. Uh, anything to say about the main story, Rocky? Uh, yeah, there, there, there's actually uh, quite a bit of information that was conveyed in this chapter. I will agree with you that I think that on the surface, it looks like not much is happening because they're they're still going after the Peacemaker. Simon Saint is still trying to take down Peacekeeper 1, who is uh, Sean Mahoney, and and uh, Peacekeeper X, who is uh, Simon Saint's, uh, f- I guess, friend Ricardo, <laughs> who's Peacemaker X, was killed by, by Sean Mahoney by was killed by Peacemaker 1 uh, last issue. And Simon Saint is devastated by the death of Ricardo. And uh, you could tell he must have some, he might even, uh, you get the impression that re- that Simon Saint might might have been in love with Ricardo. That was the impression I got. And um, hey, my instincts were right about Superman with John Kent, so who knows about Simon Saint. But in any event, um, there is concern expressed by one of Simon Saint's workers about uh uh, poison ivy and and queen ivy is under gotham city and all her plants and her root system is all under gotham and and the concern is that uh, she could collapse gotham if she wanted to and the result would be even worse than no man's land and so simon saint uh tells all his peace peacekeepers to to stop going after do not keep going after peacekeeper x or batman just he redirects them toward Queen Ivy, who is under Gotham, and uh, the gardener is with Ivy, and and so while that's going on, we get some more information because Master Wise, who is we we know Master Wise has a history. Now Master Wise is of the Insanity Collective. He has his mind machine that turned Miracle Molly. He gets rid of all the past trauma. And to, and he gets rid of all the past trauma and he helps create clarity for people with his mind machines. We we learned that Master Wise uh, used to do some research with the Mad Hat with the Mad Hatter uh, Jervis Tetched, and uh, he was actually with uh, he was he actually spent some time in Arkham Asylum with Matt, the Mad Hatter. So Master Wise has had a past where, uh, you know, maybe this guy's not entirely rational himself, but he's he seems to. He managed to break the cycle and he created the Insanity Collective because he got tired of all of all of them being considered to be insane. Uh, and that and that was, you know, he said, if you rather than we're not insane, let's let's be unsane. He created the Insanity Collective and um, and Batman tells Miracle Molly about his family and how they help him and how uh he really opens up to Miracle Molly and Miracle Molly has this, she has this idea that of maybe combining, uh, the, the mind, you know, the, the mind machine technology that master wise has and somehow use it to, to, to cure the people of Gotham. But in order to do that, they have to, you know, Scarecrow's one step ahead of them. Scarecrow has already had the idea of 
going to the mind machine because he stole Master Wise's mind machine, which has all the trauma that that the Insanity Collective accumulated when they when they took when they removed trauma from from their members' minds. They they actually put all the trauma in their AI database, and this trauma that's accumulated has been stolen by Scarecrow, and he wants to release the trauma, the collective trauma in this massive mind machine on the people of Gotham to sort of put them over the edge. So that's the ultimate threat here. That's what's happening. And well, uh, and all this is coming to a head. And then we got Queen Ivy, we got Harley Quinn, we got Ghostmaker's not even in this one. So a lot of this is building to a head, but it is feeling a little bit much. I know what you're talking about, Jace. This does feel, of, uh, it's starting to feel really heavy handled, he- heavy handed. There's a lot of uh, exposition sort of dumped in here, but there is a story here, but it is getting to the point where, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm looking forward to this finally getting wrapped up because it feels like every single week we're reviewing another chapter of this story. And it almost feels like a little bit much to me, but uh, again, it's a, it's not a bad story. It's a good story. I still say it's a good story. I just wish maybe the, the, the timing or the, just the pacing of it was, didn't feel quite so convoluted at times. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think things are happening. Um, I don't, I wouldn't claim that not much happens in this issue. But again, I, the pacing, it's like, what are you trying to do, Tynan? I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I, again, I enjoyed parts of it, but I don't know. Simon Saint not working for me. Uh, and just the overall feel of the story, it doesn't, yeah, it's just not, it's not working. So anyway, like I said, there is a backup. Uh, it's Batgirls part one of three. Clueless, it's written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. George Corona is, or Jorge Corona, I should say, is the artist. Sarah Stern does colors. Becca Carey on letters. Uh, this is clearly a prelude to the Batgirls series that's that's coming up, where basically it'll be Cassandra Kane and uh, Stephanie Brown as the Batgirls out in the field with uh, the Batgirl that I grew up with, Barbara Gordon, as Oracle in her tower, sort of uh, directing them. Um, so this sort of ties into what's been going on a little bit in, uh, in future state with Oracle losing control of her, uh, her assets and also a little bit of what we've seen in the next Batman with Seer because Seer is the, the villain here that shows up. So <laughs> sorry, my dogs are going crazy as you can hear. So, uh, anyway, uh, I thought it was okay. Um, I feel like the characterization for these girls is is pretty spot on. But what did you think, Rocky? I uh, well, the, this Batgirl story. Uh, I thought this was kind of redundant. I I think we've gotten this in other. This is just yet another two members of the Bat family uh, trying desperately to battle the forces of the Magistrate, and we've seen this before. And the only difference is that instead of battling the Magistrate, they're battling the Seer, which is basically the Seer is the evil is the evil version of Oracle. And it, this really consists of just Batgirl uh, taking out the Magistrate uh, Peacekeeper forces pretty much single-handedly while Spoiler sort of, uh, you know, meets up with her and they, they ultimately rendezvous. And they rendezvous, uh, they'll ultimately end up rendezvousing at the uh, Oracle Clock Tower. Meanwhile, Oracle is having a long protracted conversation with the Seer 
I find that uh, James Tiny and the writer here, uh, well, I mean, I guess he did the overall plot and the actual scripting was done by Becky Cloonan and Michael Conrad. I felt that, uh, I thought this was overwrought. I thought this, I thought this was redundant. I thought this was unnecessary. Uh, we're getting this story already in the pages of Batgirl. We're actually going to get this story again in another Bat story, which we've gotten so many this week. Uh, I think we even got a little bit of a form of this in Nightwing 85. And uh, we're going to be getting more of this uh, coming in, in the first issue of Batgirls as it is. I just find that this this is this is redundant. Now, I, I'm not, I already know that, I'm I'm not a huge fan of of the art on this uh, Jose Corona's art. I but this this is going to be a comic that's not for me, and and I hate to say that because Cassandra Kane, uh, I is my favorite DC character, but not when it's scripted like this. I I I I want a more serious take on Cassandra Kane. I think ironically enough, if ever there's a character that is more suited for a black label, I actually think it's Cassandra Kane. But clearly they're going the, the route of Batgirls and I think they're watering down the, uh, I, I won't go into it. Let's just say that I'm not, I just, th- th- they're clearly making this more for DC superhero girls in, in, in approach uh, than, than to my liking. And I I think that this approach is a little bit redundant, kind of it's, and these are just a couple of uh, female martial artists in the Bat family battling different versions of the magistrate forces and instead of the villain being Simon Saint it's seer an anti evil oracle and it's just it's it's a redundancy that we don't need quite frankly and so i i it's a pass for me yeah i, I agree with you um and, and part of me wonders you know do they do they throw these things out there and the storylines out there in so many different books for the people that aren't reading everything you know what i mean like we read everything yeah. so we're getting we're getting this this repetitive storytelling um and yeah it's it can be sort of frustrating in a way uh and i do agree with you about the jorge corona art i I like jorge's art but he's not a superhero artist i loved his art on middle west that he did with uh with scotty young but here it doesn't really work it's it's kind of messy and and yeah again it's it's like in a way if you want to kind of look at the positives of it at least they're they're tying things into different books like we're seeing seer here we're seeing seer over in um, in the next Batman or, or whatever. And you can think of that as a positive, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, it does feel redundant and mostly it feels unnecessary. And we've talked about this a lot, a lot of times there don't need to be backups. Stop charging an extra dollar and take these backups out of the book. Like they don't <laughs> need to be there. Um, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. So uh, anyway, up next we have Nightwing number 85. Um, again, more Fear State, Fear State part two of three. Uh, Tom Taylor's the writer. Robbie Rodriguez handles the art. Adriana Lucas on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Here's another one where I feel the same way. This is two of three. So we're two thirds of the way through the story of Nightwing and Barbara Gordon going to uh, attack the anti Oracle. We haven't seen the anti Oracle show up. They haven't even necessarily gone to the place where the anti Oracle is. Uh, I think anti Oracle shows up for like one panel here. I mean, we see her disembodied voice in several places, um, but she's literally on one panel. So at, at the end of the story, do I feel like it's we're two thirds of the way? No, I sure I sure don't. Um, and it's a real disappointment because this is one of those 
instances where a big event or whatever that's going on is, is really interrupting the flow of what was a very great story, maybe the best single DC title that was coming out from yeah. Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo. I almost feel like I'll take these future state Nightwing issues and just put them somewhere else and just consider them not even part of the run that Tom uh, Taylor and Bruno Redondo are trying to tell because in tone of the story, it feels wildly different. It doesn't feel like anything Tom Taylor was building toward. And especially with this art by Robbie Rodriguez, which is really messy and I think choppy. The transitions from panel to panel aren't very good. Uh, the backgrounds aren't very good. Um, the body language doesn't really work for me. I don't care for this new costume that Barbara Gordon has on. Um, it, it, if there's ever an example of melding uh, uh, and how much an artist matters to a story, the Bruno Redondo style and the tone that he establishes for the, the narrative visually matters so much to the story that Tom Taylor is telling. The story that Tom Taylor has crafted in Nightwing, how much uh, emotion and heart it has, is so tied into the visuals and the world that Bruno Redondo is establishing visually. Because here, and again, this isn't necessarily Tom Taylor's stories having to tell a, a future state interlude, if you will. Yeah. But still, it, it, the, it feels, it doesn't feel special. That Nightwing story that Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo were crafting, it felt like something special. It felt like it was more than the sum of its parts. This just feels like an a below average comic to me, but it's, I know it's still Tom Taylor. I know he's still telling as well as he can within the confines of the Spear State crossover, the Nightwing and the Dick Grayson characterization that he's telling when we have Bruno Redondo on art. So how can this feel so below average, you know, and I, I was willing to give him a pass on part one. I was like, well, part one, you know, it's kind of interrupting the flow of the story he's trying to tell. So I can see why maybe, you know, he's trying to find his footing, but here we are two, two thirds of the way through. And if I didn't know better, I'd say this was a different writer. I mean, obviously it's a different artist and I think that's part of the problem, but I, I think I would enjoy this a lot more if Bruno Redondo had drawn this part of it as well, because at least it would have that same feel and it would feel special. And maybe the, the little interlude in the middle of the story here with, uh, with Dick and Barbara and much younger days hanging out together would, would resonate more and it would have that special emotional feel that uh, that the regular Nightwing series has had so far. But for me, man, this was just a real disappointment. I, I don't know. Maybe you feel differently, Rocky. What'd you think? Uh, no, I agree with you. In fact, I think that I, I wonder if it's intentional. I wonder if Bruno Redondo is just working on Tom Taylor's main storyline in the pages of, uh, of Nightwing and that this is yeah, just, I'm sure he is. and that, and that, and that way when they collect the trade, maybe they'll just ignore these two issues or two or three issues, however long this uh, this Gotham uh, digression is for uh, for Fear State, and that way this this won't form part of the first Nightwing trade because this will form part of a Fear State trade or something when they collect that. I don't know. That's what I'm thinking. Now I will say one thing: this does actually feel like a Tom Taylor story to me, only because it 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 it's it's Dick and Babs. I mean, look, man, they. Uh, Barbara Gordon, uh, you know, clearly there's a flashback here. Th this story can be summed up very, very succinctly. This is just, uh, this is just Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. 
uh, asking Dick Grayson to help come along and destroy all her servers because the anti-Oracle, this seer, this evil Oracle, has taken over her network. So she wants to destroy all her all her, her backup systems. And they end up uh, going to the, the second Oracle station to destroy the backup. And ultimately they do, but while they're doing that, while they're tra- while they're rushing to that location where that second server is, they fight magistrate's forces and also the Sears forces that are imitating the magistrate's forces. And meanwhile, there's flashbacks to when Barbara and Dick were, were young. And at one point, uh, there's a mixture of fear gas that the, the Seer uses when they get into the the. Uh, when they infiltrate the second server uh, base, uh, Batgirl hallucinates that Dick Grayson gets shot in the head again. So I thought we were going to get Rick Grayson again. <laughs> but fortunately, we avoided Rick Grayson and it was just an illusion. Tim Drake shows up just as uh, Barbara Gordon Babs is so relieved that Dick is okay that uh, she gives him a big kiss. And there's, you know, for, you know, again, one thing that Tom Taylor is very good at, he's good at catering to, uh, 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 bad girl and Nightwing shippers. And if you're a fan of Nightwing and Barbara Gordon, you're you're gonna like this issue, even if you're not a fan of Robbie Rodriguez's uh, uh stylistic art. And uh, I'm not uh, uh the art is lacking here, but it does on the on the page that matters. You can you know there's some you know there's there's some emotion there, and Tim Drake when he there's some humor there when he says, oh, finally, when he sees Barbara and Nightwing kiss. <laughs> and, you know, I, you know, again, this is very much a filler for for the, you know, not, you know, I don't really care about Seer myself, this evil Oracle. It seems like very convenient. I mean, how many times has Oracle's network been ripped apart and torn down? I mean, it's, I mean, how many times? I mean, it's just, it's nonsense already. Uh, we're not sure who this anti-Oracle is, but whoever she is, she's stationed in Skybase 1, which is the magistrate Skybase uh, hovering above Gotham. And so ultimately, they'll be infiltrating that. And we also see the Skybase in the pages of, uh, of, of Batman as well. So uh, again, there is a linkage, all these things, the setting and all, all in all the bad titles, there's clearly there's they're all linked in terms of the, the, the battle against the magistrates forces and, and fear state and scarecrow and what have you. But this was, I, again, if you're a Barbara Gordon and a Nightwing fan and a shipper for, for those two getting together, this is definitely probably a must buy, notwithstanding the stylistic art that may not be to everyone's liking, but beyond that, it's probably a skip it in terms of the, the, the primary storyline that Taylor has been weaving with Redondo, uh, since the beginning of Nightwing. Yep, I agree 100%. So, uh, all right, let's move on next. Shazam number four. This is the final issue of this limited series written by writer Tim Sheridan. Clayton Henry is the artist. Marcelo Maiello on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Uh, so I read this and I ended up thinking, why did this series, why does this series exist? <laughs> uh, it ends up it ends up tying into the future state Shazam really well. But it, and we get this great double page spread um, that kind of recaps everything that happened in the future state Shazam, even to the point where we get uh, an editor's note from senior editor Mike Cotton that says, all of this was seen in future state Teen Titans, Shazam, and Black Adam. Yeah, we know. We read those. So <laughs> why does this series need to exist? Because basically all it did was 
it, it was basically a runway to get to this double page spread and say, <laughs> okay, here's everything that happened in future state Shazam and future state Titans and future state black Adam. Um, and, and we're heading towards that story. Well, we already knew that. So why does this exist? I, I don't know. I mean, the Clayton Henry arts, great. The colors by Marcelo Maiello are, are nice. Um, but it doesn't even really wrap anything up because even at the end of this issue, it says the story continues in Teen Titans Academy number eight on sale in November. So I, this mattered. Be, this was for people that didn't read any future state stuff. Hey, let's get you caught up. Then why didn't you just put that double page spread that recapped everything in the Teen Titans Academy number eight? And then we didn't need this series. It, it just felt wildly unnecessary and it's not like tim sheridan's um characterization of shazam or billy batson or black adam is is so great or groundbreaking uh that or, or so on point that it was like oh well you know e even though we may might not have needed it narratively at least we got some great character work no i mean it, it was it was okay um the voice of of shazam felt pretty on point but you know, not anything groundbreaking and not, you know, the epitome of, of Shazam. I, I would, if somebody was like, I want to read a Shazam series. What should I read? I would never recommend this. It would be like way down at the bottom of the list. Uh, notwithstanding because it's so convoluted with this Sheridan verse that Tim Sheridan's building. And I get that. And, and, you know, we talked even that during future state, we didn't necessarily like what was going on with Teen Titans Academy and it felt so convoluted, but we said, well, but we can see the potential here of what Sheridan's building and that's kind of continued in Teen Titans Academy, but man, I wish they just gave him his own title. Could even called it the Sheridan verse. Just here you go. Take the time you need as much time and space or whatever. And you could even put it outside of DC continuity. Just tell the story you want to tell. That would have been better than, you know, throwing darts here and getting a chunk of the story there and a chunk of the story here and a chunk of the story there. And, and then this ends up being just a, Oh, here's a little bit of the story that doesn't sort of tie in because it's, Shazam trying to get to the underworld where we see him in future state. And then eventually he runs into the future state black Adam that's been sent back in time. So future state black Adam can do a recap over a double page spread and tell us everything that's been going on in the shared inverse. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I'm sorry. This just was, you know, you want to talk about redundant and unnecessary. Those are the two words that I would give to this series. Again, great clay Henry art, great colors. But this whole entire series, and you know, I heard, oh, Sheridan, he's doing Shazam. I was hoping for some, give me some new information. <laughs> this is just a recap. This is just a recap. That's all it is. So ultimately a little disappointing. Uh, you, you agree, Rocky, or uh, think I'm wrong? I, I, I agree in part. I'm, I'm a little bit, I'll disagree with you. Well, I, 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 I was going to say that I actually needed, I needed the, re, I appreciated the recap. And, and okay, frankly, I don't, I think that a lot of people, I don't think, I questioned how many people were as dedicated as you and I were who actually read all the Future State issues. What are the chances that a random DC reader was familiar with what happened in Future State Teen Titans and Future State Shazam? You know, so sort of like that, that quick synopsis on that double page, I thought was sort of, it sort of set the tone and it was, it was, I found it a little helpful for myself. It's, it sort of okay, reminded I, me. I, 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 I wouldn't disagree with that, but again, like then just throw that two page spread at the beginning of Teen Titans Academy number eight 
you don't you don't need to give us a four issue no, miniseries for a two page well, spread. Here's here's what here's what uh, here's what bothered me the most, and maybe this is a nitpick, but I don't think it's a nitpick. But that's my ego talking. But I thought, how can we have? How can this be a different Black Adam? How can we have two Black Adams? I thought I was always wondering. How did we? I thought the reason why we ended up with a nicer Black Adam in the pages of Justice League was that it was the Black Adam from the future who came back and has to be nicer because he's got to befriend the Justice League in order to protect the world from the unkindness. But it ends up that that's not that's not Black Adam at all. This is a completely different Black Adam that has come back. This is a younger Black Adam, completely unrelated to the Black. Uh, the older Black Adam that is on the Justice Bendis's Justice League. So I'm really confused now because I thought he came back, you know, because what's the explanation for Black Adam's change in behavior all of a sudden in Justice League if it wasn't because he was he's come from the future? So now I'm really kind of baffled because that's what I attribute it to. Also, this Black Adam is really, I guess the Black Adam of Future State from the future, he must be a really easygoing guy from the future. But I thought he was so obsessed with saving his lost love and, and his pregnant what Wonder Woman future wife. No yeah. mention is that I've made here. And he and he and he has a coffee and he creates a coffee shop on in the Rock of Eternity. Black Adam creates a coffee shop. Come on. And he says, Call me Teddy. This is how Black is that how Black Adam talks? <laughs> in no incarnation of Black Adam does Black Adam talk like that, let alone I mean I mean, boy, he sure looks like a skinny little bone rack here. Although there's an in-story explanation for that, because when he, when when Black Adam comes back from Future State, we did get some more information. We found out that when Black Adam came from the future, came back from the future to save the present from the unkindness, that it 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 threw the Rock of Eternity off its kilter, and the death of the Wizard in the future also threw off the present Wizard because. The wizard exists in in all times, and so when the wizard in the future died, and the and Black Adam came back, it threw the Rock of Eternity into hell, and it that's what caused the disruption in Shazam's power. So we learned that, and all the prisoners of the Rock of Eternity were released, and so Black Adam has spent all this time trying to capture all the seven deadly sins, and and in this particular issue, uh, with Shazam's help, they managed to capture. Pride, the seven, that one of the deadly sins, pride. Uh, but there's still other uh, sins apparently that they need to capture. But they still need to stop the unkindness. They they still need to stop the future reality. So this issue ends with Shazam uh, getting his powers back and sharing some of that with uh, Black Adam. And he still, so he still needs to share some of that power with Freddy. I'm so disappointed that in four issues of Shazam, Billy Batson never talked to his dying best friend, F- Freddie, <laughs> who, who who's dying in the hospital. And we, we never got a conversation between the two other than a flashback uh, when uh, Shazam is under the influence of pride. But that's not an actual conversation. So I was kind of disappointed in that regard. We're probably going to get that in the pages of Teen Titans. But so I think that Tim Sheridan is bit off. He's doing his best, undoubtedly, but he's bit off too much, a little bit more than he can chew here, trying to balance this story, uh, executing it in in the pages of Titans Academy and Shazam. It's not quite syncing up very well. This is a very complex story, and there's a lot more that happens that we can't really go into here. But um, 
all in all, this was this is something that you almost can't sell this as a trade. You, you can't sell this four issue thing as a trade. And so no. having only four issues, it almost seems wasted that they're never going to get their money back even as a trade on this. Like what issues are you going to include other than explanatory Coles notes to explain how the hell we got here? But very, very baffling here. I'm I'm glad we got some explanations, but at the end of the day, we you're right when, that we don't know a heck of a lot more than we did before other than some frankly comedic moments with this new skinny black adam who who we can call teddy now now we have teddy adam and we got two black adams now existing in the dc universe uh if anyone's keeping score good grief <laughs> yeah and that's not even mentioning the the b- version of black adam we got in the justice league endless winter a little <laughs> little you know a little less than a year ago how does that right. all tie in uh, yeah, this kinder, gentler Black Adam, and we got the Black Adam movie coming, and they don't even. I think that's that's a part of the problem. They're trying to be Black Adam forward, um, but nobody knows who he is because he's going to be a you know much more of a hero in the movie with Dwayne Johnson playing him. And it's like, how do we make that work? And you know, possible future, blah blah blah. And yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, all right, moving on to Suicide Squad, King Shark number two. This is written by Tim Seeley. Art is by Scott Collins. John Kalis does the colors. Wes Abbott on letters. I'll talk about the art from Scott Collins first. Scott, I normally really enjoy Scott Collins' art. Um, it felt really rough here. I, I feel like Scott Collins, and, and I've seen this recently in his Flash run as well, uh, where he's inking himself or he's probably just drawing digitally and it's not being inked at all. Uh, his art, I think, needs an inker. It looks so much better with an inker to sort of clean things up, especially in the background and make things sort of pop. Um, so I just thought the art here was a little bit muddy. Uh, and then as far as the story goes, you know, whatever, if you're a big fan of King shark and clearly, um, DC's trying to capitalize on the prop, uh, popularity of that character right now, I, I guess you'll enjoy this. Um, we get the, the requisite Amanda Waller showing up, swinging her big, you know, what around, uh, you know, King shark works for me. How dare he go off on his own? Uh, you know, going to King Shark's father saying, you need to, to bring him back to me. Uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> Heavy handed, over the top. If you're a fan of King Shark, you're going to love this probably because it's it's pretty continuity light and it's all about King Shark battling other villains in the DC universe. I, I Maybe it's because I haven't seen the Suicide Squad movie, but King Shark, I'm like, what? A humanoid shark? So whatever. It, it's it's fine. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't terrible. Technically, it's a you know well put together comic. It's paced well. Uh, I think visually, other than the art being a little muddy, the the storytelling narratively is is good. I love the choices that he makes of what to put in the panels and uh, when to pull back, when to zoom in on faces and show emotion and, and all of that. So, yeah, if, if King Shark was uh, you know a character that I really enjoyed, I'd probably really like this. But uh, what are your thoughts, well, Rocky? Uh, well, the best scene in the entire comic is when uh, apparently King Shark hates the shark song. Baby, shark, yeah. shark, shark, shark. Yeah. Do not sing that song in front of King Shark. Apparently, he yep. hates it. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> that was that was but that was the most f- funny scene. Uh, and actually, that was probably one of the artistically, I think, the best rendered page in the entire comic, in my view. Uh, so th- there is humor there. I, uh, you know. Of all things, you know, it's funny. Amanda Waller shows up. 
again. I mean, this this woman is everywhere. She's like the thing that never leaves, never goes away. Yep. Anything with Suicide funny. Squad, she's there. So, but uh, uh, yeah, I like I said, it's I I I agree with you. I I I really just skim read this. The demon shows up. Even gentleman ghost shows up. It's really weird. I'm I'm odd that gentleman ghost. Uh, uh, shows Not even up. he could save this. Well, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, Jim Craddock, the gentleman ghost, shows up in uh, Black Manta and King Shark. You know, I suppose there's some. At least maybe there's a common theme there. They're both from the sea, I guess. But uh, um, yeah, I don't. I didn't read this enough. I took. Honestly, I, I I I took notes with respect to the other comics. I'm I don't recall the primary plot in this in order to talk about it enough, uh, so I can't really give do this justice. So uh, I don't have much to say about it, unfortunately. <laughs> I'll have to leave, I'll have to bow out now because I just I didn't I didn't read enough of it to be foremost on my mind. I skim read it and I just saw the fact that he doesn't doesn't like the Baby Shark song. So you know that that put a sm chuckle on my face and then I kind of discarded it. It was the victim of me reading fourteen other comic books in the same time frame. But <laughs> yeah, the, the basic storyline is is King Shark is is out there. There's there's this basically contest of champions between all the different avatars of, of different species, you know, so there's a human uh, avatar who's fighting for the, the, you know, bragging rights for humans. There's obviously King Shark's fighting for, for bragging rights for the sharks. Um, there's somebody who's fighting for the, the reptiles or somebody that's fighting for the birds. And basically they're, they're in this magical realm and they're just, it doesn't say that there's any sort of consequences. It just seems like they're, they're literally fighting for, bragging rights to say, Hey, you know, we're, we're the best or we're the most powerful or, or whatever. <laughs> um, and, and King shark has left the suicide squad to go and do this. So Amanda Waller's pissed off because she didn't give him permission to leave. So she goes uh, to his dad, who's sort of the, the God of sharks and says, Hey, you know, why did you let him leave? He's, you know, you agreed to give him to me. Uh, so you need to bring him back basically. So uh, anyway, up next, uh, Superman, Son of Kal-El, number four, from writer Tom Taylor. Danielle DiNaculo on art, Gabe Eltab and Hi-Fi on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, big bombshell at the end of, of last issue, issue three, where one of the, the metahumans that President Bendix created was dropped on the, uh, the farmhouse that Superman grew up in, that Lois and John uh, and Clark sort of made their own home when they came back in uh, the pages of, of uh, Superman, Lois and Clark during rebirth. So, you know, I, I talked a little bit about the, the announcement that, that John is by, and, and obviously we have some interactions here with his soon to be boyfriend, I guess, Jay Nak Nakamura. And I mentioned me not really liking that, that choice or, or how that news came out. Um, and it's not because I, I, I don't think John should be by or I even care whether he is or not one way or the other. The big problem that I have with it has to do with who John Kent is more than anything and, and all the headlines. Superman is by Superman is by John Kent. I don't I don't care if it's Tom Taylor, whose work I normally really, really enjoy or DC Comics or Jim Lee or whoever it is. that's trying to shove this down my throat that John Kent is Superman. John Kent is not Superman. John Kent. <laughs> Could be Superman someday. I won't argue that. But as of right now, John Kent is not Superman. 
He hasn't earned that title. He's done nothing to show me that he is Superman or he's ready for that. You want to call him Superboy and have him charged with protecting the, the planet while his father goes off into space for a war world. And that's a whole nother thing that feels redundant. Uh, you know, I think the exile and uh, Superman exile was the best, one of the best stories, Superman stories ever. And it doesn't need to be revisited. Um, but at least it's technically a good story. And I like what, uh, what Philip Kennedy Johnson is doing there. But if you want to call John Kent Superman, no, it doesn't work for me. He is not Superman. And maybe him stepping up while his father's gone as Superboy gets him to be Superman at a later point. But the, the problem I have is all these headlines and these people with knee-jerk reactions. What? You can't make Superman gay. He loves Lois Lane. Clearly, these people haven't read the comic. They don't care. They just want something to be mad about. And they're idiots, frankly. Uh, but the fact is, if you didn't call John Kent Superman prematurely, you wouldn't have this problem. So, you know, it all goes back to what I was saying before about uh, Tom Taylor said how Superman is his favorite character. Kal-El, Clark Kent, is his favorite character. And he's talking about, oh, I'm so happy to be writing Superman. Tom, I know you're not. I know you're selling the company line or whatever. <laughs> and you're not going to say otherwise because you're smart enough to know. But you're not writing Superman and you know that. John Kent is not Superman. And he shouldn't be. He's done nothing to earn it. He doesn't have the experience. He hasn't learned. Again, it's just DC has handled him so sloppily. Like, remember when he was still the young boy and he was struggling to try to figure out his powers and his powers weren't stable. Sometimes they'd work. Sometimes they weren't working. Um, and now we've seen hints that he's even more somehow you mix human DNA with Kryptonian DNA and they become even more powerful. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Never known Lois to have any kind of metagene. <laughs> but leaving, leaving that out, what, how, is, how is he so experienced in using his powers now? Because even when he was trapped in the volcano for all those years, he didn't even have his powers. It's not like he was trapped somewhere with his powers and could have learned to use them. He didn't have the powers because there's no sunlight. So it just seems like so many steps have been skipped along the way of trying to turn John Kent into Superman. He's not Superman. He hasn't earned it. He's Superboy at best. and even Tom Taylor can't make this work in my mind. I, I like a lot of the ideas. I, I like this Jade uh, Nakamura character. I like this idea of, of this organization that he's this sort of internet news organization he's created called the truth and, and trying to get um, information out there, investigative report, reporting. He's actually more intimidated and more nervous around Lois than he is Superman or John because Lois is his actual hero. I love the idea of bring, be, uh, bringing in Bendis or Bendix rather, uh, although Bendis is a, a villain in my mind as well for what he did to John, but but Bendix, Henry Bendix as the, a villain for uh, John Kent. We talked before about the similarities between Lex Luthor, but how he's different enough to differentiate. So there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, I just wish this was called, just call it Superboy. Stop trying to say he's Superman and I'd be much more of a fan of, of this series. As far as him being bi or not bi or whatever, I, I couldn't care less um, whether he is or not. It, I, I don't really th think about it and like what could have made him that way. You know, there's the whole argument, nature versus nurture, whatever. I, I, I don't see it. Does it seem like tokenism? I don't know, maybe a little bit, but I don't see that there's anything wrong with that because God knows there's plenty of uh, more than enough sort of straight white male superheroes for me to like when I was a kid for me to have looked up to, 
you know, so I don't see anything wrong with giving somebody who's of a different uh, sexual preference a hero to look up to. So whatever, I, I don't think it changes the story for me. Um, it's, and I don't have a problem with it. The problem I have is this arbitrary decision to just say, John Kent is Superman. And kind of as a consequence of that, knowing that now that this has happened, John has become Superman, he's gotten his own title. It's, it's, they're never going to put the genie back in the bottle. He's never going to be aged back down to the age that he should have been. We're never going to get the stories of him learning how to use his powers and those great, more of those great father son stories that we should have had with him growing up since he was artificially aged up. And even, even forgetting about that choice of artificially being aged up, the way it was done isn't even, it's not a good story in and of itself. It's just not a good story. It's like Bendis did what he often does when he doesn't want to tell the story of something or can't figure it out. He just snaps his fingers and from one issue to the next or from one panel to the next, he just starts telling us about what happened. Oh, John got aged up. Sorry. I couldn't figure out a way to make it happen that made sense. So it just happened and just accept it and we'll just move on. He does that kind of stuff all the time, right? It's it's the problem that we have with his Checkmate series, where it's a bunch of people standing around talking about things that have happened that seem like they're exciting, but we never get to actually see the exciting things happen. So uh, this whole idea of, of John Kenneth's by whatever, it's not the problem I have. The problem I have is this sort of arbitrary decision to make him Superman. As far as the issue itself, it's not the best issue of this series that we've had so far. It's not the worst. Um, I didn't care for the Danielle Nakulo art. Just doesn't doesn't work for me. It's too stylized. It's too cartoony. Um, as much as the John Tim's art is sort of busy, I've I've come to accept that's the the look of what this is supposed to look like. This uh, the series is supposed to look like. Um, and here with the Daniel Nakulo art, it just it didn't do anything for me. Uh, again, it's just too. Too cutesy, too cartoony. Um, so I, I don't know. It, and it, it, the thing is, on Seven Secrets, which is the other title that Danielle Nakulo does with um, with Tom Taylor, I think the art works. It doesn't feel as cartoony as it felt here. I don't. I don't know if maybe it was the coloring because I feel like the coloring is similar as well. It's some sort of bright primary colors, which is what I think it should be on a Superman comic. Uh, so I, I don't know why it just felt so art just felt so juvenile to me. So anyway, what did you think of this issue, Rocky? Well, I, I agree. I mean, look, uh, it's funny. I, I, I put a poll on Twitter asking, uh, out of four choices, what, what situation felt more narratively forced. And, uh, the, the, it was Superboy kissing, uh, or John Ken kissing Jay Nakamura, uh, and the other choice was the aging up of John Kent. And the other one was, uh, Super, uh, John Kent kissing Saturn girl. And there, there was another one, but the one that got over 50% vote was the, the aging up. So people do feel that that was very narratively forced. And, uh, and I agree, you know, it's funny cause that's the elephant in the room. It's a product of 5g. I mean, and that's, there, there's a lot of, you know, Grant Superman and the authority is a story too, that very clearly was meant for 5g with an older looking Superman and what have you. And very clearly here with an older, forcing this John Kent, we were supposed to get, you know, we're getting a, we're supposed to get an older Wonder Girl and an older, a new Wonder Woman and a new Superman. It's odd that we're getting Wonder Girl that's, but yet we're getting Superman. 
And yet, if 5G went through, then this would legit, John Kent would legitimately be then Superman with, and then Wonder Girl, Yara 4 would be Wonder Woman, not Wonder Girl. But now the timeline's all screwed up. So now we have a younger Robin. So Robin Damien is still kind of 13. But now we're supposed to believe that John Kent, who I think in continuity, isn't he 17? So they're calling a 17 year old a man. He's not a man either in age, he's not legal to drink. So I don't know why you would want to call him a man. Other than to force this nonsense that, you know, oh, now this, you know, this just corporate speak that, oh, look, we, we, we have a bisexual Superman. This is it. it, It's hard not to feel that this is just, again, I, I'm like you. I don't, I don't think anyone cares what his sexuality is, but you know, it's just like Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is bisexual. How many years ago did they mention that? And then they never, they've never done anything with it. Uh, Here with Superboy, are they going to do anything with it? Uh, so he kisses Jane Akamura. I think that's probably going to be the end of it. And uh, I, I jokingly said uh, to, uh, I think I even said it to you privately, I, I, I'm i more offended by the fact that Jane Nakamura, I think he looks ridiculous. I mean, I think he's a dumb looking character, pink hairs. Like, he just looks like a ridiculous character. And uh, frankly, I'd be, if I was John Kent, I'd, I'd be embarrassed to hang out with a guy with pink hair like uh, you know it's like watch like like it's like it's it's like a k-pop reject or something but uh so if i'm gonna get in trouble it's for my discrimination against pink-haired men so uh but uh, it is what it is uh tom taylor is tom tailoring in this issue and that's all right he's introducing characters from a suicide squad the airy and wink are two uh you know uh same a same-sex couple from a suicide squad run i loved his 10 issues of suicide squad that tom taylor did I thought that was quite good. I love the use of. Uh, uh, I thought it was interesting that the Kent Farm was was actually successfully attacked by Henry Bendix because at least during Bendix's run, it was supposed to be under the protection of the Justice League. the The Kent Farm was supposed to be protected against magic attacks, Atlantean attacks, any kind of tech in the galaxy. The the, the Kent Farm was supposed to be protected against. But along comes Henry Bendix, and all it takes is that he drops a, a post human called earthquake or whatever her name is quake on this on this farm and it seems to blow it up i want to give a shout out to uh a danielle uh dinacolo yeah i actually thought i really liked at the beginning the slow motion of the of how john kent was thinking in in fast motion and how the he could the the way that it was artistically rendered that the house was slowly exploding and you could and you could uh, we were privy to John Kent's thoughts, to Superman's thoughts, as the as he could see things happen really slow in real time as the house exploded, and how he discovered that Jay Nakamura is actually a, is able to become non corporeal, and he's a he's a post human or a meta human. I thought that was very well done. I thought that was cleverly done, and so I'll give some credit to the artist on that. Uh, I thought the coloring actually helped the art here. The shortcomings on the art. Uh, uh, were some was were lessened somewhat by the eye popping colors. I mean that that pink hair just pops off the page of Jane Akamura, <laughs> and uh, uh, I thought it was uh, you know uh, this is John Kent you know getting his bearings you know and he's uh, he's figuring stuff out. Uh, Jane Jay, Jay's a pretty good reporter. He uh, trusts super uh, he trusts Superboy. He gives Superboy all his notes that he's taken and all his investigations. He's he's partake. He's partook in uh, in investigating Henry Bendix. 
Uh, John has his mother, Lois Lane, look into it. Lois confirms a lot of what was uh, reported on uh, by Jay Nakamura. And, you know, uh, I do find it kind of interesting that Lois, uh, I'm surprised Lois tells John Kent to, yeah, go ahead. If you want to, if you want to fly off and confront Henry Bendix, go ahead and do that. Uh, I'm surprised. I didn't think Lois would be that stupid uh, because Lois, I would have thought Lois Lane would warn her son. You don't go confront a head of state. You know, I mean, uh, you're probably heading into a trap. I thought it was fairly obvious that it would be a trap. I mean, Henry Bendix is playing John Kent like a violin and uh, and Lois Lane, his own mother. I mean, if, I mean, she's so smart as a member of Checkmate. Uh, why can't she, since she was easily able to sense a trap, uh, and yet she, she sends her son off and tells her son to, you know, just, well, you know, trust your own judgment, do what you think is right. I was a little surprised by that. I thought that was, I felt a little bit forced to a little bit out of character for Lois, not to, uh, you know, both Lois and Clark being like perfect parents. I don't know, like letting John Kent make all his mistakes. Now this is your son. You missed seven years of his life. You actually going to trust this guy to make his own decisions. I mean, come on. Like I, I thought that was a little bit forced, but I'm being a little bit hard on this. Uh, but um, in any event, it ends with John Kent being, uh, he falls into the trap. Whatever Henry Bendix did, he overcharged John Kent's superpowers. So John Kent now has, uh, he, he's, he's losing control of his powers. And that will lead into issue five, where uh, he'll have a confrontation where I think Jane Nakamura will undoubtedly play some role in helping John Kent out, which will lead to what is advertised as the infamous kiss between Jane Nakamura and John Kent. And you know what? Isn't it interesting that I call him John Kent? I can't bring myself to call him Superman. It's hard for me to call no. him Superman. It really, really is. He looks like a super boy. He talks like a super yeah. boy. And he's skinny like a super boy. He doesn't look like a Superman. And it's it's as simple as that. Yeah, it really is. He He's not Superman. So... Uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, more more 5G uh, fallout, I guess we'll say. Nubia and the Amazons, number one, written by Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala. Stephanie Williams handles the script as well. Aletha Martinez on pencils, Mark Morales on inks, Emilio Lopez on colors, Becca Carey on letters. We get the origin of Nubia here, which is a different origin than we've gotten from her before. Um you know, before she was so much more closely tied into the origin of Diana, at least when she first appeared. Um, now it's like, you know, they call her a sister, but all the Amazons are sisters, aren't they? So it just so happens that she comes out of something called the Well of Souls on the same day that Diana was created, apparently. And that makes them closer. That makes them more sisters than the other Amazons are sisters, I guess. I don't know. That that really didn't make sense to me. And I, I thought the change in origin... It, it lessens the connection between Diana and Nubia, which in my mind makes Nubia less special. Um, and so I didn't really care for that change. Um, but then we jump forward many, many years later uh, to sort of now in the DC continuity where Hippolyta has left Themyscira and she's actually performing with the Justice League or acting as Wonder Woman for the Justice League because Diana supposedly had died at the end of Dark Knight Death Metal. So Nubia is actually the queen of Amazons here. And for the first time in, in centuries, uh, apparently, the Well of Souls has opened and there's more uh, Amazons coming out. So supposedly what the Well of Souls is, somebody who's uh, a woman who's killed through violence in man's world is, is reborn uh, on the island of Themyscira. And 
I don't think I've ever heard of this before, but I haven't read all the super uh, or the Wonder Woman stuff. It's that you it's, have. it's the golden. It's one of the golden age uh, origins. It it is. Okay. It goes gotcha. back to the Silver Age and to Golden Age. The the idea of the Well of Souls, the Cavern of Souls. It's 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 steeped in in older Wonder Woman lore. Yeah. Gotcha. So uh, the thing that I mean, clearly, this is building up to that trial of the Amazons that we're going to get in January. Uh, but the other thing that I really felt was kind of an underpinning of the entire story that was being told here by Stephanie Phillips and, and Stephanie Williams is there's just a sense of foreboding. Uh, or I, I'm sorry, Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala. Uh, I think yeah. I said Stephanie Phillips. Stephanie Phillips is doing the – she's doing a Wonder Woman story with uh, yeah. with Mike Hawthorne, but that's coming yeah. later. Uh, but yeah, Stephanie yeah. Phillips and, and – uh, St- sorry, Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala. The story they're telling here, there's such a sense of foreboding. Like you know something bad is coming. There's all this foreshadowing and there's tension. And it's like these new women that have come up from the Well of Souls is, is one of them uh, – in, uh, not who they seem. Are they an infiltrator? Are they a traitor? Uh, I, I just like that sort of sense of of menace, uh, the sense of foreboding that's captured in in the series. And sometimes it's not even so much behind the scenes because in the last couple of pages we get um, one of the Amazons who has a, a vision. Um, Penelope shows up uh, at. Uh, Mira's door and uh, uh, the well of souls, Doom's doorway, everything was in ruins, everything. And, you know, we see the, the images that she saw with uh, Diana uh, crying tears of blood and, and Themyscira in flames and all that kind of sort of thing. So yeah, clearly building up to something. I, I really enjoyed this. I, I liked the tone that Williams and Ayala gave us here. I really enjoyed the art from Aletha Martinez. Uh, I think she's an underrated artist. There's a, uh, there's three different variant covers. I thought every one of the variant covers was fantastic. Um, I had a real hard time deciding which uh, which cover to buy, actually. Um, and even now, as I'm looking at them, I'm thinking, man, I, I might have to I might have to double dip and get that Aletha Martinez cover uh, as well, just because it's it's so good. Um, but the other two covers I, I thought were were fantastic. I think the the cover that I ordered was the one by um, Joshua Sway. Uh, Swaby goes by Sway, Sway Art. Um, so uh, I thought that was uh, fantastic as well. But uh, anyway, what did you think, Rocky? Did you, did you enjoy this as much as I did? I I absolutely did. This is this is the best. This is hands down so far the best. This is the best Wonder Woman comic that's come out in, frankly, the last, it last probably it, for my at least the last two years. This is this is filled with. Uh, I love the history. I love the substance here. So much is packed. So much. This is such a well-paced issue. It's clear. It's well-structured. It's beautifully uh, artistically rendered by uh, Alisa Martinez. Inks by Mark Morales. Fantastic. Colors pop off the page. And it really does deal with uh, Wonder Woman lore. It's bringing back the Cavern of Souls, the Well of Souls. It's such an inspired idea. And it's about time. And frankly, it's timely. And the the fact that you know, I mean, got to remember as uh, even I always laugh, I chuckle at uh, Brian Azzarello during the New Fifty Two. The way that the Amazons populated their themselves is that they would rape sailor for their sperm every one hundred years, and then they would kill any male offspring or give them to Hephaestus, who would, and that's how the male Amazons were created down in hell. This is this is going back to Wonder Woman's roots, and this is just taking victim women who were victims and victimized in a past life, reincarnated as Amazons to basically choose their name and 
we're 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 made privy to the the ceremony that these women go through. They get to choose their name and and uh, there's a welcoming ceremony and they 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 get assessed by by uh, Queen Nubia and by Penelope and the other Amazons and Magda Magala who is sort of the keeper of the well of souls and they get to choose their names and and then Magala, who collected trinkets from Diana, Wonder Woman from Man's World, would give them trinkets, and uh, as and they got to choose their own names. And we got Andromeda, Xena, Delphine, Carisi, and and Baya. Beautiful names with beautiful women. I mean, these, <laughs> I mean, I was really impressed. I felt like I I felt like I got to know something about Amazonian culture here, and it's fascinating. And then the Well of Souls suddenly. It, it seals itself up again and uh, it, it's it's fascinating and at the same time Nubia has to choose a new guardian for Doom's doorway because Doom's doorway of course is open and they're on a rotating shift appointing different Amazons on a rotating shift that guards Doom's doorway and and this is important to Nubia because in the past Nubia was the the last person to come out of the Well of Souls was Nubia herself when suddenly it's sealed up and when she came out, it was on the same day as uh, Diana was born. So there might be a connection there. It's very fascinating. I, I, and I love how it's, maybe there's a connection with Diana. Maybe we don't really know what that is yet, but I really like this. It's, uh, I find it fascinating. I love the fact that Doom's Doorway is going to be playing a role in this. What What's going to be coming out of Doom's Doorway? Uh, even with the young Diana stories that we've been skim reading, the, those young Diana stories have have a younger Nubia being one of the earlier guardians of Doom's doorway. So there's a little bit of a de facto indirect tie in there. There's, there's a majesty uh, to, to this. And this, I, I feel that there's, it, this felt regal. This felt the Amazons, this felt like an entirely new world to me. And there's even a beautiful page spread where it, it tells us something in the past. This is a clever use of exposition and narration in a way that, that doesn't feel like it's a chore to read. It feels like it feels informative and enhancing the narrative. And I'm, like I say, I'm impressed. It is interesting too that a lot of the Amazons, there seem to be a lot of women of color here. And so they're clearly going that route, which is very interesting. And I, it's very, you know, I'm impressed. And I'm, I'm really curious. This is, this is exactly, I mean, Vito Ayala and Stephanie Williams, man, this is the way it's to be done. I mean, when you compare this to the mess that we were reading in Wonder Girl, which is a complete mess, or what, or the gong show we've read, oh, I'm being a little bit harsh on Clunan and, and Conrad's Wonder Woman run, but this, this was entertaining to me. This feels like I'm in Wonder Woman's world and, or Queen Nubia's world. And I, I, I don't want to leave, man. It's, it's, it's that good. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Probably, maybe maybe the best book of the week. I guess we'll see. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I have a feeling you like this next one a lot too, though. It's uh, The Flash number 775, Beacon of Hate. Jeremy Adams is the writer. Fernando Passerin on pencils. Matt Ryan does inks. Jeremy Cox on colors. Steve Wands on letters. We saw this glaive, uh, this this uh, weapon come flying through the, the air and crash in the middle of Central City. And this issue starts off with Superman trying to to pull it out of the ground as Flash and Mr. Terrific look on. Um, and then it's clear as, as the story goes on that this glaive is sort of amplifying people's negative emotions. Everybody except Wally West. Uh, apparently everything he's been through recently with Rebirth and 
being trapped in the speed force has given him in his own words, this sort of Zen feeling where he's just kind of <laughs> able to go with the flow and uh, he's not, doesn't easily give in to, to negative emotions, even to the point where Superman is given in to, to some negative emotions. And while he kind of gives him a pass on it saying even the best of us get frustrated at times. And like, you literally are the best of us and you're frustrated. So I guess that's, <laughs> you know, hundred percent, hundred percent true. So yeah, this ends up being a, a pretty interesting story. And then eventually this, this being from outer space that sense this uh, hate filled weapon from uh, across a, a lot of, different time and space, I guess, called Starbreaker shows up and uh, he's finally able to pull the glaive out and, and then becomes consumed by it. And it turns out this glaive has been sort of holding, I guess, the essence of Eclipso, which when Flash hears that, he's like, I guess that makes sense. All the anger and the vengeance and whatever. Um, you basically used that as a, a, a bait to reel somebody in who's stupid and powerful enough to that you could take over. Um, and so Flash is worried that you know, he's going to have to take on the Starbreaker who's now got the, the power of Eclipso. But Starbreaker says, you know, uh, maybe uh, I'll come back at some point. But right now, Flash, you're, you're kind of beneath me. And what I need to do, time is of the essence. So I'm getting out of here. And he, he flies off. And Flash is like, well, you know, maybe that wasn't the best thing to have happened. But uh, the Glaive is no longer generating these waves of hate to affect people. And Starbreaker left Earth, so I'm counting that as a W. <laughs> and uh, before he can go back home to to Linda to make sure to patch things up because he had a little tiff with her earlier in the issue and maybe help clean up some of the uh, damage that was done in all these various battles with people getting mad at each other and car accidents and whatnot. Before any of that can happen, this green onk appears and he walks up saying, Doc, is that you? You know, obviously the, the symbol of Dr. Fate. As he gets close to the symbol, a hand reaches out and yanks him through the onk into this dark space. And uh, sure enough, it's Dr. Fate who's there and his, his uniform sort of in tatters. And he's like, uh, Flash, the fate of the universe is in your hands. And Flash is like, well, those aren't exactly my, my best feature. Like, what are you talking about? And Dr. Fate just unleashes this sigh because <laughs> uh, Wally still doesn't appear to be taking anything seriously, which again, that's part of what is so great about Wally, right? That he yeah. can see the bright side and, and, to, to Rocky's point all the time, where's the hope in the DC universe? It's, it's Wally. And that's why so many people thought that it was missing during the, the new 52 era and, until rebirth when Wally came back. So uh, we're told that next issue is the craziest, most meta and wild issue of the flash ever published. Um, I sort of felt like that whole glaive thing with the way <laughs> it was foreshadowed in last issue, that that story was going to last a little longer. Maybe this is not the end. Maybe we'll see Starbreaker come back. Um, Maybe this is a building block, but maybe it is just a, a one and done for now. Uh, but what a way to do a, a, an issue that doesn't necessarily tie into anything that came before or anything. I mean, there's light continuity, obviously Mr. Terrific and Flash works for Mr. Terrific and, and whatnot. So there's there's light continuity, but man, Jeremy Adams is doing such a great job of giving us these sort of, like you could read this as a one and done. Yeah. You can just pick this up and read it and it just ends up being a, a really fun story with great art. Uh, and I... I as I'm reading it, I'm like, man, this is going on for a long time. I, I guess because it's the 775th issue, they put it as an oversized issue. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of pages, really... 42 pages. Like, wow. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, I thought overall this was this was pretty solid. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. And I, I, I just loved, I love that how he kept, he stayed so hopeful and cheerful. I mean, 
The number of villains that he faced in this issue was extraordinary. And Jeremy Adams did a bang up job handling all these characters and kudos to the artist, uh, Fernando Passerin. Wow. Did he do a good job? There's a great scene where Wally West here basically pretends he's a bowling ball. And, and there's a great double page spread where he confronts all of the, uh, a huge rogues gallery consisting of trickster, King shark, Giganta, major force, Dr. Light, Prometheus, killer frost, gorilla grod, ultra humanite, weather wizard, and rainbow rider. And I think I mentioned them all, and maybe I missed one, and I apologize if I did, but wow. And of course, we got Starbreaker at the end. A lot of people show up here, and you would think that in 42 pages, how do you give all those people uh, any kind of uh, sh ways to shine? But somehow, uh, somehow Jeremy Adams manages to do it. Uh, Flash just, he's got, his attitude is... You think he'd be terrified. I mean, in the hands of another writer, I mean, if this was an, any other character, I mean, this could be a potentially terrifying moment. But these villains are drawn. I, I love the idea that this glaive attracts the unworthy, that only the unworthy may lift the glaive. <laughs> it's right. crazy that here Eclipso or Starbreaker doesn't realize he's possessed by Eclipso. Starbreaker is attracted just like all these villains are, to get this glaive. But none of them are quite unworthy enough to pick it up. But Starbreaker is. <laughs> so I like the idea of thinking of it that way. you you got, you got to be really unworthy. you got to be a real piece of SHIT to be able to pick this thing up. So thank God Superman couldn't do it, or The Flash, or Mr. Terrific, or anybody else. And But it's very fitting that, of course, Starbreaker did. And a quick mention here that, guys, Eclipso now has shown up. E Eclipso was in that glaive. And remember, the last time we saw Eclipso, we saw Eclipso in that flashback at the end of Infinite Frontier, uh, issue six, where we know that Darkseid is going to be, you know, uh, battling probably for the control of the, the multiverse uh, and try, you know, because Eclipso is going to be one of the multiversal bads that will try to get control of the multiverse along with the gentry from multiversity and, and, and dark side and like the anti-monitor and uh, Necron and all those multiversal bad guys. Uh, this is slowly these multiversal powerhouse villains. We're going to start seeing them uh, take the playing field uh, in the various titles of the DC universe. And this is the start of that. And I love the fact, I love the fact that, you know, if there's any doubt that Wally West has more hope than even Superman, this issue, thank you, Jeremy Adams. This is just another way uh, to further redeem Wally West. Big smile on his face, all that hope. We got that great father-daughter issue last time. And now we get this. I, I thoroughly enjoy this. And to have Dr. Fate show up at the end, <laughs> Dr. Fate is such a dark and kind of gloomy character himself. And here he's, it's funny. It's going to be an interesting juxtaposition between Dr. Fate and Wally uh, next issue. And I'm really looking forward to it. But yeah, this is, uh, this is, uh, this is a real fun issue. It's a, it's a toss up between this and uh, Nubia at this point. Yeah, I agree. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman Secret Files Peacekeeper 01 from writer Ed Brisson, James Tynan and Ed Brisson on plot. Joshua Hickson is the artist. Roman Stevens on colors. Travis Lanham on letters. I don't know what the point of this is. I mean, are we supposed to feel bad for Sean Mahoney? Are, are we supposed <laughs> to? Like, we know Sean Mahoney's a piece of crap, right? Like, we know. So this is his origin. And guess what we find out? 
Sean Mahoney's a piece of crap because his dad was a piece of crap. He basically comes from a long line of pieces of crap. Uh, you know, the apple hasn't fallen very far from the tree. Um, am I supposed to feel bad that, you know, Sean Mahoney never had a chance? No, he, he made his own choices. He had plenty of time to, to turn away. Uh, I guess it, maybe it's a cautionary tale for how uh, bad apples happen and, and influenced by um, environment. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, so I just, I, again, another one of those comics where I felt like, what's the point of this? Uh, I feel like the uh, dialogue and the pacing are elevated by Ed Brisson's talent. He did a lot with a little here because it was interesting enough and it was a compelling read, even though I, there were no surprises. I knew exactly who Sean Mahoney was going in. Everything went as exactly as I expected. And at the end of the day, Sean Mahoney's a piece of crap. So uh, yeah, it was, it was okay. The Joshua Hickson art, I absolutely love Joshua Hickson's art on, on certain things, but he's another one of those artists where I don't feel like his, his art style is best served in superhero comics. Horror, crime noir, slice of life, all that I feel suits his art style better. And even though Fear State is supposed to be dealing with the, the horror of, of, uh, of Gotham that the Scarecrow is inflicting and James Tynan's a great horror writer and he's definitely trying to, you know, if you've been reading, if you're uh, subscribed to him on Substack, he's been talking about how he wants his Batman run to be action horror. You, when you put Batman or Superman in a comic, it's automatically a superhero comic in my mind. It's it's not possible to make it true horror, in, at least in my mind. You can try to get there, but you're never going to get there because at the end of the day, you've got superheroes in there. It just doesn't it just doesn't work in my mind. So in that same way, Hickson's art here, although it's it's good and moody, it doesn't quite suit the story um, because this isn't a horror story. This isn't a crime noir story. This is a this is a super villain story if you will. And uh, yeah, the narrative just basically reinforces that uh, Sean Mahoney's a piece of crap. So uh, not really sure Tynan's choice on, on creating him and, and making him such a central figure. He's just so unlikable and, and, and really kind of sad in a, in a, in a lot of ways to the point where he's, it's not even that I dislike him. I don't even care. And, and that's the worst thing. Like, at least if you create a character, um, you know, there's some something to be said for eliciting strong feelings and emotional reactions in readers. Like you get a reader say, oh, I absolutely love that character. Or, you know, the argument could be made as much as I dislike Amanda Waller. She's a good character because she elicits such a strong, strong response in me, right? Like, my God, I hate her. Um, with Sean Mahoney, I, I just don't care. He, he just, he's like a fly. Just go away. I don't need to read about you. You're not important. You're not consequential. I, I really don't care. You're, I'm, I'm being forced to read about you and forced to think that you're important because that's the narrative plot that Tynan is building here. Um, and, and Mahoney's been a, a puppet of Simon Saint. But, but really, I, I don't care. I just need him to go away and never show up again because he's, he's, so, he's so paint by the numbers. You know, there's nothing there. There's nothing interesting about him. It's all cliche. So, yeah, in my mind, you definitely can skip this one, even if you're reading the fear state um, storyline there, there's nothing, there's nothing new here, but nothing groundbreaking. It's all, it's all cliche. So I don't know. Did, yeah. did you feel differently Rocky Did this one? Well, uh, you... I, I kind of feel the same way you do. Uh, not quite as harsh. I actually find it ironic that Sean Mahoney is such a cliche, but yet that's exactly how he feels about himself. 
He's got such a low self-esteem and it's, it's, it's made that way. His entire family has become somewhat of a, somewhat of a corrupt joke. I mean, Sean Mahoney's great, great grandfather was Irish and in 18, came to Gotham in the 1880s and helped build the Gotham city bridge and actually died helping to make the bridge, even though it was, it was funded by the, I think it was funded by the Waynes and the, and the cobble pots and what have you. And there was corruption in the making of the bridge and, uh, the great great grandfather of uh, Sean Mahoney, whose name was also Sean Mahoney, uh, died in the and and there's a plaque on the bridge that that Peacemaker One Sean Mahoney goes to when he's under the influence of the fear toxin, and, and it's quite funny that they spelt his great grandfather's name wrong. They spelt Mahoney wrong on the plaque back in the 1880s when they when they made that tribute, and so the the, the shame and the, and the and the disrespect against the Mahoney's started way back in the 1880s uh when they when the Mahoney's first came to the the US and and in subsequent generations his his great grandfather Henry Mahoney was the first Gotham one of the first Gotham City police officers and was head of the corrupt unions and then his grandfather was in Falcone's back, back pocket and was also corrupt. And then his father, Patrick Mahoney, ended up being so corrupt that he was ultimate, his father was fired by Commissioner Gordon. And Sean Mahoney himself, as a young man, tried six times to get accepted into the Gotham City Police Department. But because of who his father was and because of his own record, uh, Commissioner Gordon refused to hire Sean, Gordon, uh, Sean Mahoney because he felt that he was just going to be like his father. And he's denying his application as long as he was around. Commissioner Gordon told him, as long as I'm commissioner, you're never going to be on the police force. Because of that, Sean Mahoney ends up taking a job at Arkham Asylum. And to his credit, he does a pretty good... He, he He's he's kind of a jerk at Arkham Asylum. He beats the hell out of the Mad Hatter because when, when he was younger, Mad Hatter at one point when... When Sean Mahoney was a young student going to school, he was Mad Hatter used mind control technology to 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 uh, manipulate the kids. And Sean Sean Mahoney's father Patrick, uh, who subsequently ended up owning up a, a pub called Patrick's Pub, didn't believe that his son was mind controlled because no Mahoney can be mind controlled. And he actually punished his son. And and later on, when Mahoney is a guard, he became one of those corrupt guards at Arkham, and even would routinely beat the hell out of some of the uh, Arkham cellmates. And, but yet on a day, Sean Mahoney did hit the better angels of his nature, Sean forth. And he did attempt to save some nurses and he did. So he did, he wants to be a hero, but he so desperately wants to be a hero, but he can't look past his own shortcomings to do so. He can't get out of his own way. He's still, it's that legacy of corruption. He seems almost defined by his past and the irony at the end you know, the, the sad irony is at the end, he confronts his father, Patrick Mahoney, at, at Patrick's pub, and he confronts his father and he lets his father have it and says, look, this is all your fault. It's not my fault. And he, he even though he's under the influence of the toxin, he doesn't, he, he, he seems to be making some sense and he's getting some catharsis out of screaming at his dad saying it's your fault. Unfortunately, he, he he puts Batman and the Joker in the same category as his father, <laughs> and that's that's and that's not only one has to ask: is that because of the fear toxin, or is it something else? Is this a future antihero, or is Sean Mahoney destined to remain a corrupt cop and continue his generational legacy, which isn't particularly in which isn't particularly good? So, all in all, I think this is a good one shot if you want to if you want a good history of the peacemaker. Because if you want the history of the peacemaker, 
Although a lot of the stuff we got in past issues, it's nice to have it all in nice one package like this because it's a much more cohesive narrative than the spotty sort of uh, storytelling of trying to piece together all those Batman issues. But uh, not bad. It's it, this is this is actually I like this. I would put this in the same category as Miracle Molly Secret Files. Th this the Peacemaker Secret Files and Miracle Molly are probably my favorite. Well, I, I did like the Miracle Molly, although not the art. But yeah, I didn't feel the same way about the story. Miracle Molly, I thought was good. This one I thought was. Eh. But yeah. I, I I take your point. Like the fact that he despises himself because he is a cliche is. That's an interesting aspect. And again, I credit all this, everything that worked in the issue, I'm giving all that credit to Ed Brisson. <laughs> what yeah. didn't work, uh, I'll blame on Tynan <laughs> and, and the poor choice of artists. Because again, I think Hickson, unlike the art in Miracle Molly, I think this is good art. I just think it sets the wrong tone. It's not, Hickson doesn't, isn't a, a superhero artist. So uh, anyway, on to the next book we're going to talk about. Green Lantern number seven from writer Jeffrey Thorne. Tom Rainey and Marco Santucci are the artists. Andy Owens handles the finishes on pages 24 through 30. Mike Atea does the colors, Rob Lee on letters. So once again, we get two stories here. We get what's going on in, in kind of the lost dark part of the universe with Jon Stewart and, and the lanterns he took over there. And then we get what's going on in our universe with Joe Mullen, the, uh, you know, the, one of the few lanterns that has power along with, uh, with Kelly teen lantern and then Simon Boz in this sort of, uh, Iron Man type armor that was built for him. And he has this gun that can uh, dissipate uh, willpower constructs, which would be a, a really good weapon in the hands of a Green Lantern villain. So <laughs> not sure how exactly that came about. But anyway, Tom Rainey handles the art in, in the first part of the story with Jon Stewart. And you know, I, I gave him a lot of credit last time for not giving us any pages where the the proportions looked off like he tends to do. Unfortunately, in this one, the, the sloppiness is, is back, but not as bad as I've seen it in the past. The biggest part of the problem I have with the first part of the story is I guess we're back to, okay, Jon Stewart is, is the end-all, be-all, greatest hero character in the history of the DC Universe ever um, because we see Jon Stewart sort of killed in the past by an ancestor of, uh, of Darkseid. And then we get this John Stewart. That, that is dark like side. That is dark side. Oxus. Oxus. Dark side before he like evolved. That's right. Into yeah. Dark side. Yep. Yep. And then uh, basically what we end up with because of that happening is John Stewart in the present turning into like John Stewart, new God. So yeah. Jeffrey Thorne has literally turned John Stewart into a new God. Um, John Stewart's a fine character, but this and, and this was the problem I had with the first issue. And I gave Jeffrey Thorne all the credit in the world for getting away from that. It felt like in the first issue of this Green Lantern series that it was it was like a fan fiction of worship for John Stewart. And he pivoted away from that. And I, I started to have hope that this was going to be a pretty good series. And even though John Stewart was doing very heroic things, it didn't feel like it was crossing over that line into like fan fiction John Stewart worship. John Stewart as a new god, yeah, we're back to John Stewart, the greatest hero ever. It doesn't, it doesn't feel authentic, you know. Like you're removing the flaws in John Stewart that makes him an interesting character. This is the wrong, in my mind, this is the wrong path to take John Stewart down. So that that was a disappointment for me. Uh, and then as far as the the second story, 
it just felt like not much happened. Um, we see Sojourner or Joe Mullen coming back to the United Planet ship with with Kelly after she's been in this coma from attacking Sinestro. And then she starts having bad dreams because she feels threatened. And again, for no reason other than it suits Jeffrey Thorne's uh, narrative, I guess. Teen Lantern and this gauntlet that we don't know the origins of is so much more powerful than every other Lantern, every Thanagarian, ever, every whatever. And basically, uh, Simon Boz has to go and kneel down and kind of pet uh, Kelly, the Teen Lantern, just pet her head. You're safe. Simon Boz is here. Stop having bad dreams. Like, what? That, that, first of all, again, super cliche, super tropey. And, and how's that moving forward? How's that moving the story forward? I want to know who blew up the Green Lantern battery. Is that going to get resolved? What's happening to the other lanterns that aren't over in the dark sector? Like, give me some forward momentum on the actual story and questions I want to know instead of shoving Teen Lantern, another terrible Brian Michael Bendis created character, down my throat. Like, I don't know, man. This is indicative of, of really a Overall, a poor. I, I know I'm, I'm going on a lot of rants. I didn't realize this week was so <laughs> poor for me, but but now going through and looking back at these books, yeah, this was really a down week for me in terms of, of quality for for DC. So yeah, didn't didn't enjoy this issue in my mind, without question. This is the weakest lanterns since issue number one, and maybe maybe even worse than issue. I'd have to go back and read issue one, which I won't subject myself to. I'd have to go back and reread it to see if this is worse than issue one. Um, or issue one was worse than this, but yeah, wasn't a fan. Didn't like what went down here. And even Marco Santucci's art, which normally I'm a big fan of, uh, and maybe it's because he has those Andy Owens finishes over him on the last few pages. I didn't feel like the, the art was as good as Marco Santucci's art normally is because normally I'm a big fan. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you felt differently, Rocky. What'd you think of this issue? Well, you, you uh, Okay, there, there's uh, this potentially is uh, this is a, a a a game changer. This is rewriting the history of the new gods, going back to the fourth world, Kirby's fourth world. This is potentially rewriting. Yeah, and do you think Jeffrey Thorne is not a writer that has the cred to do that? By the way, well, uh, I'm well, I, I maybe I can't argue with you with, with with that, but I do find it interesting that he's rewriting the the first this is the first meeting between the Owens and the new gods and a conflict between Hegra, who is Darkseid's mother, Oxus, uh, Oxa, Prince Oxus, Oxus, who becomes Darkseid. Uh, he's uh, Isaiah, Granny Goodness, a young Granny Goodness, younger parademons, even Desaad is younger here. A lot is ha- happening in this issue and potentially history might be changed here. And not only is he doing that, but it's worth mentioning that People who have read the Green Lantern series Mosaic, uh, Jeffrey Thorne stated in an interview that where he's going with this, Jace, and and I didn't know this until I, I listened to his interview, that in the in, in the series Mosaic, Jon Stewart becomes the first human guardian. And nothing ever came of that, and that always bothered Jeffrey Thorne. That always bothered that that, that, that thread line wasn't continued. And... Uh, in fact, John Stewart uh, was appointed by the Guardians to care for a group, a species that made up a mosaic of different species, 
and he ultimately was appointed the first human guardian. That was one of the explanations why the guardians were so fascinated with Earth and why they appointed initially three and four Green Lanterns on Earth. Why was Earth so different? Why so many Green Lanterns for Earth? That was back in the day during that series Mosaic. It was an 18-issue series. That was one of the reasons because they were anticipating a human becoming the first, you know, I guess non-Owen guardian. But that that honor went to John Stewart. Now, eventually, that on, he he was no longer a guardian. But I think Jeffrey Thorne is bringing that back because Lonar here, the god of journeys, takes him back in time. And when you go, when you travel back in time with Lonar, the god, the new god of journeys, you you. you you won't create a paradox. So John Stewart can actually interact in the past and not create a paradox, which is, which is something I'm sure <laughs> too bad that doesn't exist for the flash. Somebody called Joshua Williamson, but in any event, it's, it's interesting. I don't know where Jeffrey Thorne is going with this. I don't, but I'm fascinated by it. And I, I, I say that as a counterpoint to your point, uh, Jace, that, that maybe John Stewart, that there is something special about John Stewart, but it, it might be something that has already been earned in a past Green Lantern story, Mosaic. And I would have to go back and reread that story, but I just put that out there that maybe some of this is is a story that we're gonna that's already been told. And this is just he's he's just trying to do his best to maybe do a be a Jeff Johns and sort of build on a past story and uh maybe not doing it to the liking of many. But I I like I'm very, very curious with this. I'm actually curious to know what this interaction between the Owens and the new gods in the past has to do with the present. I don't understand that. What is this secret? Why is John Stewart so special? Is it because he's an he's actually he's becoming a guardian or or something else in this series? Like I'm not really sure, but I'm fascinated by this and I'm really curious because I never got any sense of this when I read Future State, although we did see Orion show up or the red or uh, an Orion character, what looked like a new God show up in future state in that final battle. But how this all plays out, I'm not sure, but I got to admit, I am, I am intrigued. I am intrigued. Now, maybe nothing will come of it. And we'll, you know, Jeff, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because he's really got me intrigued. I really liked what I saw with the new gods here. I, I wish Tom Rainey's art, I would have preferred maybe a, a different artist. And I say that with great respect to Tom Rainey. Uh, but uh, I'll I'll take what I can get because I'm I'm curious and I'm interested enough in this storyline at this point. I'm invested. Yeah, I, I mean it. It is there are some good, cool ideas here, um, but again, I just think messing with the new gods, going back and I don't know. Maybe I'm just tired of the retcons. Um, so anyway, uh, on to the last book we're going to talk about in detail. It's Suicide Squad number eight from writer Robbie Thompson. Eduardo Panseca handles the pencils for pages one through three, six through nine, 12 through 17, uh, <laughs> along with inks on those pages from Julio Ferreira. And then Dexter Soy handles the pencils and the inks on pages four through five, 10 and 11, 18 through 22. Marcelo Maiello on colors, Wes Abbott on inks. Um, the art is inconsistent. So not a big surprise <laughs> if you just heard me uh, give out those credits. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the... I didn't enjoy the Dexter Soy art as much um, as the Eduardo Panseca. I just felt like the Dexter Soy stuff is a little, little rougher. Um, but I, I feel like 
I wouldn't necessarily notice that the Dexter Soy stuff is rougher if he'd done the whole thing. The problem is that the Panseca art is so much more smooth and clean that it, in contrast, the Dexter Soy art doesn't look as good in my mind. So doing a real disservice to Dexter Soy uh, in my mind for that. But as far as the story itself, it's it's pretty fun. I, I love the... I think it's ambush bug that's that's narrating it because you know yes, it is. <laughs> sort of sort of meta awareness that he had <laughs> like that's almost like a, another superpower that he has in addition to his teleportation skills um, and he's talking about like how this would fit in a in a comic and you know he's, he's talking to us directly as if it's uh, as if he's Robbie uh, Robbie Thompson's voice uh, the you know the writer's voice in this and I, I really love that it's. I mean, I, I typically haven't been an ambush bug fan in the past, but, and, you know, I, I could see people while well, he's just Deadpool. He's not, this is so totally different than what Deadpool does when he, when Deadpool, you know, breaks the fourth wall. Um, and it, Deadpool is just so much more sort of nonsensical. So I, I really like this. Uh, I like the kind of narration. Um, and what it does is it allows Robbie Thompson to go really, really quickly in terms of getting us caught up with what's been going on with Suicide Squad, uh, and and give us a big chunk of story moving forward, without that narration from Ambush Bug, this story would feel a lot more choppy to to move at this sort of breakneck pace that Robbie Thompson's giving us. But because we have Ambush Bug to sort of narrate it for us, it, it flows pretty smoothly, and it's like we're getting little snapshots of of the actual story that's being told. So. Um, in terms of, of that story being told, we know Amanda Waller's kind of off the reservation. Even the American government is now on my side and thinks that she needs to go away. She's off hiding, trying to still uh, bring her plans to the takeover, the takeover of Earth 3 to fruition. Um, and she supposedly has stopped any sort of way from anybody coming to, um, to Earth 3 from some sort of dimensional portal or or coming through from, from the back door as she kind of puts it. So now she just needs to figure out how to make earth three safe from any like actual physical assault from uh, somebody who actually exists in the earth three universe. So, um, and while she's trying to put that all together with, with keeping the suicide squad together that apparently now even getting your head blown off and dying won't get you out of the suicide squad. Now that she <laughs> sent her, she sent her team to hell and is yeah. sort of, now has this conduit so even if you die as a suicide squad member and go to hell she'll just go down to hell and bring you back it's your so, worst uh, nightmare chase you you can't even escape is. amanda by dying i know i like i kill her i kill myself like <laughs> death doesn't even free me from amanda waller she's become in, in a way immortal what a horrible 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 uh, turn of events but but hopefully what's going to be my my savior what's actually gonna gonna prevent amanda waller not only is the U.S. government after her, but we know her her former uh, protege, the the leader of of the Suicide Squad for for years, Rick Flag, has recruited his own Suicide Squad, and is going to go out and stop Amanda Waller. So he's got Cheetah on his team. He's got Mirror Master. He's got a Parademon, and we saw in the the pages of Swamp Thing that uh, that uh, Levi Kamei actually took the bomb out of Peacemaker's uh, skull. And is, is telling him, if you want to make peace, walk away, walk away from the suicide squad, walk, walk away from this battle uh, with me. But uh, 
Rick Flagg's not going to let Peacemaker walk away. He's actually going to recruit him. And hey, no, nobody better in my mind to pull the trigger on Amanda Waller and take her off the game board than Peacemaker. I haven't haven't been the biggest fan of Peacemaker uh, over the years, but I actually kind of like the characterization that he's had since he's come back. You know, I, I was kind of ambivalent about it or, or maybe even a little reluctant because it so felt like Peacemaker was being shoved down our throat because of his appearance in the James Gunn Suicide Squad movie, because of his upcoming uh, HBO Max series. Uh, and again, Peacemaker is not somebody that I am really that familiar with other than when he showed up in Pages of Vigilante back in the day. Um, but I like his characterization and I, I like a lot of what Robbie Thompson has been doing here. Uh, I've really enjoyed. I love that Talon has been Rick Flagg's sort of mole in the Suicide Squad, uh, you know, with acting crazy with his who, who uh, act and whatnot. So uh, it, it's just nice to see Robbie Thompson come in, tell these Suicide Squad stories. You know, he's, he's, he's been over at Marvel for a long time. He's, he's a newer voice at DC and he's giving us something fresh. This is a fresh take on the Suicide Squad that despite the fact that Amanda Waller is here, has been really fun. He's he's mixing in humor with action and uh, great authentic voices for these characters. And yeah, I, I, I'm really enjoying it. And despite the the inconsistency in art, individually, I think Dexter Soy's art stands on its own is great. Uh, the Pansica art on its own is great. I just think, don't put them in the same book. Or if you are going to put them in the same book, at least have one do the first half and then one do the second. When it switches from one to the other and then back again you're not doing either one uh, a service because the comparison between the two just doesn't work in my mind so but anyway i thought this was a pretty solid uh issue i'm, I'm really enjoying robbie thompson's take on the suicide squad what do you think rocky uh yeah and it has some good emotional moments too i love uh i love when calabra at one point calabra is actually killed in this issue of course all the a lot of the suicide members the suicide squad faces off against the hell squad and they they later discovered that was fully orchestrated by amanda waller because uh, that was all part of the plan she fully intended for some of them to die so that she could test out her lazarus re resin that the doctor who is working for her has uh, sort of developed to basically raise them from the dead and there was a there was a scene where Clebra dies and she wakes up and she's still in hell and and she she says to uh, Tal and she goes uh, oh man she goes oh oh shit Tally I really am a bad guy <laughs> and I felt for Clebra because you know it's like even though she is kind of a badass she uh, uh, one gets a sense from Clebra that she's maybe she's out of place in the Suicide Squad and because she seems to have a kind soul and yet she's on such a dark and uh, you know obviously uh, crazy team of called the suicide squad you don't get to work for amanda waller uh by being uh you know a, a girl scout but in any event i thought this worked quite well the way that ambush bug infiltrated uh they didn't really show much of it somehow ambush bug was sent to the rock of eternity which we know ends up in hell because black adam sent back in time and we know that from the pages of shazam <laughs> and ambush bug collects a a portion of the metaphysical shield that protects the rock of eternity that Amanda Waller wants to use to create a metaphysical shield to, to prevent, um, you know, creatures of magic or people with magical powers from infiltrating earth three to create a magical shield around earth three. And, uh, in future issues, uh, I understand that we're going to probably be getting a story where they, they need to physically protect Earth-3 from such from outside threats on the outside, not just on the inside. And that's going to involve something to do with uh, the Suicide Squad members going into space. And I think 
trying to get some portion of the power battery or on Oa, which will involve the Green Lantern. So, um, yeah, Robbie Thompson does a great job weaving this, weaving these characters, using these characters so well. Uh, we get introduced to, uh, you know, great fight scenes here. Uh, these are, these are people. It's amazing how these teammates fight alongside each other and yet can turn on each other. And if they have to kill each other, they'll turn and do that on a dime. Uh, we get the Hell Squad of Slipknot, Branch, Mind Warp, Major Force shows up to be recruited by Amanda Waller. Uh, we got Rick Flagg's team at the end with uh, the Cheetah, Mirror Master, Parademon, and then, of course, trying to recruit the Peacemaker. And uh, meanwhile, Waller's, Waller's chief scientist befriends Talon, who is working with Rick Flagg. Uh, in order to defeat Waller because she wants to betray Waller. And so th there are so many people that want to betray each other behind the scenes. And Amanda Waller's on the run from the U.S. government and the, everyone, no one trusts everyone. And now we don't just have bombs in heads, but we've got, we've got, we got a Lazarus resin that you can't even escape the squad by dying. And wow, Robbie Thompson has really raised the stakes here. And this is just, like I said, this is a lot of fun. This is a, you know, this is, this is a lot of fun. This has a lot of moving parts, but unlike, let's say, Titans Academy or Shazam uh, or some of those other titles, which seem to feel more convoluted, Robbie Thompson has, has connected this series with other series, and yet this feels... Uh, surprisingly cohesive as a narrative overall. So he's done a, he continues to do a fairly competent job on this title. Yeah. And again, it's just surprising because I, I didn't, I clearly, he has love for this, uh, the suicide squad, um, you know, characters, this property. And I wasn't, didn't realize that he, that he did. And, you know, the, the danger was that, okay, because of the Suicide Squad movie, he's, it's just going to be a regurgitation of, of that in tone. And, and even though I haven't seen it, from what people are telling me, this is not. This is clearly its own thing. He's building to something, and uh, and it's pretty pretty interesting. And despite me not really liking the, the Future State Suicide Squad stuff because it was so Amanda Waller-centric, he's telling the story of Amanda still trying to get there, and she's – She's more, she's not as much a, as a character in the story with me having to deal with reading, you know, her machinations and, and being annoyed by her as much as she is a, as her plans are a, a device to move the story forward. And uh, yeah, I, I really love that there's an actual suicide squad dedicated to stopping Amanda Waller, who's is sort of synonymous with the, the property. I mean, the argument could be made that there, without Amanda Waller, there is no suicide squad. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's going to do it for the titles that we're going to talk about in detail. There are a few other books coming out. Uh, Wonder Woman Day is coming up on Thursday, the 21st of October, and there are three special edition books. I don't know if they're free or, or if they're just um, uh, you know, at a cheaper price or whatever, but there is a Wonder Woman Day version of the Diana Princess of the Amazons, which is a book that came out. It's for young readers. came out last week. Uh, there is also a Wonder Woman Tempest Toss special edition number one, which reprints the first chapter of the Wonder Woman Tempest Toss graphic novel that came out a few years ago. And then there is a Wonder Woman The Lie special edition number one, which is that uh, the Greg Rucka story from Rebirth that was written, uh, that was uh, drawn by Liam Sharp. So although look for all those this week. I, I mean, I guess they're not coming out till Thursday because that's Wonder Woman Day as opposed to the other DC comics that are coming out on Tuesday. 
Um, but if you're interested and you're heading down and want to celebrate Wonder Woman Day, look for those. Uh, there's also Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Issue number 112. Uh, let's see, what else is there? There's Legends of the Dark Knights number six, which is a uh, digital first, which is getting uh, a bunch of the, the recent digital episodes all collected. There's also a few other trades. Uh, the Dollhouse Family trade paperback comes out. The Batman Last Night on Earth trade paperback from Greg Snyder and Greg Capullo is also coming out this week. Uh, there's also one of DC's horror titles, Refrigerator Full of Heads, number one, which is coming out this week, which I, I actually read, and I, I don't know how much it ties into the basket full of heads, but I thought it was I thought it was okay, like interesting enough that I'll probably read issue two when it uh, when it comes out. But those are a few of the other DC uh, books that are coming out this week. Uh, anything you want to add about any of those, Rocky? Uh, no, I just uh, no, I I think you uh, I think you you summed it up well. All right, I I, I feel overall it wasn't a great. DC week for me. I, I didn't enjoy a lot of the, the title I, I, and it wasn't like anything was overtly terrible, um, but it just felt like a below average week for me. Uh, but I, I will say if I have to pick one book that stood out above the rest or was my favorite, I'll go with the Nubia. Uh, I just felt like the foreshadowing and what that bodes for the future of, uh, of Wonder yeah. Woman corner of the DC universe is pretty exciting. So that, that was my favorite book for the week. I, I agree with you. I just want to say that uh, uh, I've, Jace, for those watching this on YouTube, Jace has a, a green screen and I just, I just figured out the green screen now, Jace. It is a, <laughs> it is a that. control button on my end. I, I gave you a background. Finally, I, there was a, there was a fade level button that, uh, that I was able to access. So unfortunately it's near the end of our broadcast, but next time oh, we'll good. have great backgrounds for the two of us. I'm, I'll be experimenting with different uh, effects moving forward. So my, my apologies to those watching. So, and the beautiful gray background or yeah. Fantastic. That That's totally yeah. You guys don't know. We spent like 30 minutes, 30 <laughs> minutes before we started recording, trying to get this freaking green screen to work. So anyway, glad, glad we got it all figured out. Yeah. We'll have uh, some interesting things to do with that uh, coming up on, on subsequent, uh, subsequent recording. So everybody reminder, if you're listening to us on the audio only podcast, uh, go over to YouTube, do a search for comic boom with an exclamation point, subscribe to Rocky's channel. So you can check out all the other great content that he produces, ring that notification bell. So you know, when that content is coming out and make sure you give this video a like conversely, if you're checking us out on the comic boom channel, you want to check out the other content we put out on uh, the comic source. We're on every podcast platform. There is uh, iTunes, Google stitcher, uh, all of those, just do a search for the comic source on your favorite uh, smartphone device or uh, app and you'll find us there. So uh, once again, we want to thank everybody for joining us and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.